Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. Got the big new movie out in theaters right now, The Batman, which we've both been very excited for. We will be reviewing that at length on today's show. I really, really liked it. Sean, what about you? It's fucking great. They, they finally, they did it, Jonathan. Hollywood made an actual Batman movie. <laughs> like They made a live action movie featuring Batman. And it's it kicks ass. It does kick ass. I'm. It's so weird, Sean, because this has been my reaction that I've been telling people is like, oh, they finally made a Batman movie. And then I say that and it sounds silly because this is like the 10th Batman movie. Yeah. But it is, there's a lot, I was talking to my brother the other night after I saw it. And we were both talking about this. There's so much in this movie that is, it's honestly low-hanging fruit for Batman. Uh-huh. But just them taking it for the first time, like... He's a detective. He doesn't kill people. He fights like a ninja. Just the most... He has a character arc. Just the most basic stuff that, like, we all love from Batman in every other media other than live-action movies. And now it's in a live-action movie. And I know it it seems like damning with faint praise, but also, it's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's like, it is... There's two things that are satisfying about it. One is, as a Batman fan, as you say, of, like, Batman in all other mediums that... Where he is a, you know, like, fantastical take on a hard-boiled detective character. um, Because that's just what he is. Um, And the live-action movies have never done that. So this does that, and that's satisfying. But it also just does that at an extremely high level. So it's not just, like, fun because you're a Batman fan. It's just a really, really well-done movie. I mean, there's a couple of things... I uh, like uh, that they could have done a little bit better. I think probably everyone thinks that the ending is a bit too long and stuff like that. But, um... In general, I think it's just a great movie um, that is yeah. very much, you know, it, it tickled my Batman-loving heart in a way. Uh, even more than I was expecting. I was super excited for it, but it even it um, was, was even better than I had hoped. Yeah, so that's our spoiler-free review. If you haven't seen it, it's long. Very worth it. Go see it. It doesn't feel long. I mean, it feels, it's, no. it's, it has that, like... It's it's got a slow burn to it because it's a neo noir mm-hmm. movie, so it, it needs to. But yeah, like other than a couple of stuff near the end, I think generally, um, I I was not bothered at all by its length. Which well, we just rewatched. I'm I'm very famous for my like you know I if you make anything a movie over ninety minutes long, you need to like sign get people to make a fucking petition about it or some shit to get permission to make a long movie. <laughs> but this 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 earns its length. Oh, 100%. Like, you know, we have recently on our Batman on Film series rewatched the Nolan movies. This feels shorter than oh, all God, the yeah. Nolan movies. <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah. much better earns its length than certainly like the fucking Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, I mean, I think the Dar- I think the Batman, the new one, has a slightly awkward second to third act transition. Nowhere near on the level of like the Dark Knight's transition or the Dark Knight Rises being all first act, like that kind of thing. It's, yeah, anyway... Yeah. It's a great movie. I'm really excited to break it down with you, Sean. Just nerd out over a Batman movie that's good. Um, but we've also been playing the shit out of Elden Ring. I don't yeah. know about I don't know about you, Sean. I'm playing an unhealthy amount of it. I'm like 34 hours on my play clock, and that's been since I was only eight hours in last time. That's a terrifying amount of the last seven days for me. Like over a seventh of it has just been Elden Ring. Yeah, I think I think I've maybe played even more than that. I don't know what my hour <laughs> count is, um, but yeah, it it is like other than like Genshin Impact, which is a kind of its own thing because that's like a 
you know that's that's a lifetime game not a you know you just like sort of play it it consumes your entire life for just like a week it consumes your entire life in a very different way than Elden Ring does other than that I, I can't think of when the last time I played a game that so completely grabbed me and I'm just utterly obsessed with like I'm now consistently staying up about an hour plus later than I normally would just because <laughs> I can't stop playing Elden Ring. Yes. Like, it's it's that kind of thing of where, like, I'm having dreams about playing Elden Ring. Um, It's been a while. I think maybe the last time I had a game other than Genshin Impact that did that might have been Red Dead Redemption 2. Um, There's something about Elden Ring that is just so all-consuming, and it's just so fucking good. Um, yeah. That, yes, I've been playing it completely obsessively. Yeah, so, I mean, that's most of my stuff is the Batman and the Elden Ring. Do you have any other stuff? No, I mean, it's just been, it's just been <laughs> Elden Ring. As they, they, I, I'm, I want to try to respect the voice director's choice that it's a dactyl. It's stress, unstress, unstress. Every actor calls it Elden Ring. It's not Elden Ring, it's Elden Ring. So, be <laughs> very careful about your pronunciation. I do love that FromSoft games have gotten, I mean, as big as games can get, basically, yes. at this point, and they still have the same, all the same weird eccentricities, uh-huh. like the voice acting being kind of terrible, but in that way, fucking brilliant. Like, it's, Yeah, it's got this very, like, hyper-theatrical quality to it um, that, yeah, is it, it, yeah, it sounds like the same kind of voice acting that fucking Demon's Souls had in, like, 2008. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, more on Elden Ring in a second. I My only other stuff, and just to update people on where the podcast is going in the next couple weeks, is I've been binging through the first season of the anime Jujutsu Kaisen, and we are going to be doing uh, kind of like what we did with Kimetsu no Yaiba Demon Slayer last year, reviewing season one, and then there's this new movie coming out, and we'll review that as well. So, that show is fucking great. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything if you haven't seen it. It's a twisty-ass show. Yes, um, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a show in an anime... Burn through as many subgenres of shonen anime in as short a period of time, and like get off to the ground running so fast. It's a it's a crazy show. Also, maybe has my favorite anime ending of all time. Oh my god. Oh yes, yeah. The the <laughs> ending to Jujutsu Kaisen is like already legendary. I feel yeah. It is yeah. particularly uh-huh. the part when Gojo Satori comes in and he starts uh-huh. his dance. It's just like you're like, how could a it's how could a show have any more swagger than Jesus Kaisen? I don't think it's possible. Uh, uh, having Mr. Bushido in that part doing the things he does, yeah, 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 it's a great show. I'm, I'm excited. I haven't started my rewatch of the first season yet because of the aforementioned Elden Ring. Um, but I'll, I'll get into that too because it's a great show, it's so fun. Anyway, let's get into it. Let's talk about Elden Ring. Uh, how? Sean, how how do how? we even talk about this game? Like I I don't I, know. It, there's a good chance that we have done completely different things because even though I've spent an insane amount of time this week playing it, there's a massive chunks of this game I haven't even like glimpsed at yet. Well, that's the thing. Maybe to start with is this: I feel like the more I see of the game, the more intimidated I am by the scope of it because you can be thirty plus hours in. And just starting to realize how big the game is. Like, it is... It feels like the biggest game ever made to me. Not just in the mm-hmm. sense of the landmass, which is really big. But I think you there's probably, like, Assassin's Creed Odyssey or something probably has an even bigger yeah. landmass. Red Dead 2's map is, in a, like, square mileage way, way bigger than the map yes. in Elden Ring. Um, but... but 
Elden Ring is dense. Yeah. This is a game you pick pick a direction, go for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, 1 minute, you will find something that could consume your whole day. Uh-huh. And that's every day with this game. I just to let people know my general progress with it. Last week I had done Stormvale Castle, which is your first sort of objective that they sort of gently point you towards. But since then, I've only done one other of the Grand Runes, which is the yeah, um, Academy of Rhea Lucaria, um, which I finished last night. Other than that, it's just been exploring, getting into trouble, going on adventures, finding an area I'm just woefully unprepared for, having fun with it anyway. You know, uh, this, Sean, this this might be the greatest game ever made. That's like a thought that keeps uh-huh. running through my mind as I play it. It's like, this is a phenomenal fucking game, and it's so fucking dense and big. Yeah, because because I think it seems like some of the stuff we've done is is similar. Because yeah, like the last time we talked about it, I had I was like right about to fight Margit the Fell Omen again, who's sort of like that first major bossy encounter. If you follow the sort of critical path or whatever that they point you towards, that I had fought when I was like level five or something, like right at the beginning of the game, got killed two or three times and said. I feel like you're not supposed to be level five fighting this guy because you're not like <laughs> like that character is definitely um, as like first bosses and souls games go. He's definitely like I think a step up above most stuff because I think he is really meant to make you feel oh I shouldn't just be banging my head against this guy because I drove pat or I drove I rode my horse past this that 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 this and that and the other thing on my way here. And I, I was very glad that I picked a class that like is particularly I picked the bandit class that is particularly um hard early on because it starts so low level because it meant like it encouraged me to break out of that souls mindset very early and say let me not just bang my head against this boss over and over again which is the masochistic thing that souls players do which is just like right fuck it i don't care that this boss is incredibly hard i'm just going to keep on doing this until i beat him and instead i went off on my crazy adventure where I ended up, as I talked about in last week's podcast, I got teleported to the Kaled Waste, where the Scarlet Rot is deep in the eastern edges of that map. Um, that happened know... to me this week, and yeah. Jesus Christ, yeah, anyway. Yeah, and so that happened. Uh, I like that I know most of the proper nouns of the game now, so whenever I feel like I think about or can talk about Elden Ring, it, it's always just like, it sounds like the coolest thing ever, because all the shit in the game is so cool. Um, I went on that adventure... And found a bunch of random shit over there um, and got into hijinks and then worked my way back west towards the Limgrave area, fought a dragon, which was fucking rad, um, and then came and then was like ready to go fight Margit again. Um, so since then, um, I did all of the, the Stormvale Castle stuff and that was fun because I was definitely way more powerful. <laughs> like I kind of breezed through <laughs> a lot of that stuff. I absolutely bodied um godric the graph did because that is definitely i was like again i had fought so much stuff that was way above my level when i got teleported away so coming back to him was like oh i'm just gonna stomp this dude but that was a cool boss fight um and then i've been really very thorough in how i've been exploring the game so i like went through limgrave with a kind of fine tooth comb trying to find everything i could then i've done most of the stuff on the western side of the map so all the like the lake of laernia um, I've done all the stuff in the Academy of Rhea Lucaria, um, and then there's like a further section north of that, not the Volcano Manor, which I haven't gone that far yet, but there's like um, another, there's another area that's like, I forget what the name of the family is, I think it's like the Carrion family or something. But It's their like, manor, right? Yes, their manor. Yeah. I've done that and met some characters, and I've done a bunch of the like 
Um, I don't know how much of this stuff you've done, but the kind of like quests or whatever that are very Dark Souls style, right? There's no quest log, but there are different side characters you encounter in the world and the people at the round table hold that there are a bunch of sort of um, side quests you can go on. And some of that stuff is a lot more like involved than I feel like it has typically been in Souls games. So I've been doing a lot of that because there's a major quest line that involves a character named Ronnie over there. Um, that then has sent me back. So where I currently am as I'm back in the Scarlet Rot following a different quest line. And I'm, I'm pretty close. I think I'm going to go challenge um, R General Radon, who is there over there in the eastern side of the map. Yeah. So I don't even think I could summarize for you everything I've done this week because it's been such a crazy journey. Mm -hmm. But yeah, early. This was so funny. I think it was after we finished recording last week, Sean. I sat down to play the game and got teleported out of the blue because this game has some crazy fucking teleportation surprises, uh -huh, which is so yeah. funny. And I got teleported over to Kaled and the Scarlet Rot and all of that stuff. I mean, actually, I got teleported into the fucking cave yes. where, like, yes, and it's really hard to get out of because you're plopped in, like, the worst area to, like, actually mount a, like, strategic offense. It's so bad, but it's wonderful. And so I played around in there a lot. I did lots of random things. The thing that, like... I think the moment I fell in love with the game was as I was running around Kaled, there's a big tower that I saw off in the distance. Um, and I forget what it's called now. But it's uh, it's this big tall tower and I rode over to it. It had many misadventures along the way, obviously. But I rode over to it and the tower is a little off from the landmass. And in any other game, that would tell me it's part of the skybox and that mm -hmm. it's inaccessible. But I went... Well, what if? And I started jumping around with the horse, and I realized you can totally get into that tower, but it involves a big, massive horse jump puzzle, because the horse can double jump and you cannot. And it seems like you are breaking the game and fucking with it, but this is totally what Miyazaki and co. wanted you to do. Mm -hmm. And I finally get into the tower, and there are enemies in there that I am... So, like, I could not have possibly killed at my level. Like, it, I, there's no amount of get good with, like, what I had uh -huh. that I could have killed those things. So it was learning to run around them. The interior of this tower has a bunch of platforming puzzles, is, is the best I can say, like, to describe it. And finally got to, like, the boss of the tower, who I still have not been able to go back and, and beat. He was a little, little too rich for my blood. But I, uh, I, I, but the simple process of, there's this thing in the distance I'm curious about. And this has gone through all 35 hours I've played with the game. It has n never disappointed me. No, like, yeah. curiosity I've ever had has gone unrewarded in some way. Even if sometimes it's, oh, well, this thing I was curious about I really can't do yet. That's fine. I'll put a marker down and do it later, right? Um, and that can be really satisfying. So that whole process, like, really made me fall in love with the game. Eventually, I, I did what you did, Sean. I journeyed back to Limgrave. I finished up a lot of stuff there. I spent a long time this week in the south. The south of Limgrave does not have like a big great rune, but it has lots of fun little quest lines is it, and areas. This, is it, are you talking about like the area beyond the bridge that's at the south? Yes. Like, okay, yeah, because I, yeah, I, I like I like went across that bridge and was and met a lady there that was like there's like a side quest or something. I was like. I have too many other things going on. I'm going to, I, I do, I literally have a little journal that I have. That yes, I, I, I keep by me anyways, because I, I got in that habit when I started teaching. Um, so I've, I've jotted down a note of like, come back here. There's like this lady gave me like a key or some shit and told me some shit. And I was like, I'll come back here later. Uh, so I was like, I've got all kinds of crazy business going on. But 
Um, yeah, yeah. So that's an area of the game I haven't really explored much. Yeah, I'm forgetting what the south of the map is called right now, and I should I'm going to look it up. But um, it's it's been it's uh, let's see it's the Weeping Peninsula is where I was basically, mm-hmm. um, and I did all the stuff down there, and I did that actually on a tip from my brother who went down there and said. There's a bunch of places to find the sacred tears, which is what you use to make your flasks better. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I headed down there. But I wound up staying down there and doing pretty much all the major stuff down there. This great, great area. Really, if you want to just like the pure Elden Ring exploration experience, it's one of the best, like I think, early areas because it's it's not like like Caleb is crazy hard that's like late game stuff i feel like it's supposed to be um Mm -hmm. the south is a little more manageable and then i eventually i've done a bunch of other stuff but i eventually did start uh heading heading west into the um the the area we were just talking about with the the rail lucaria yeah the yeah lyurnia of the lakes is such a great just such a great name for that area and i have not by any means done that exhaustively i've done the main rail lucaria stuff um, but I know the manor you were talking about because that's like next on my to-do list. Mm-hmm. I kind of like got the the bonfire there um, or the the lost grace as they call it. I, I always just wind up using the souls terms. I'm... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's bonfire. <laughs> you know, you're getting souls. I, I know that they're yeah. called runes, but yeah, it's too ingrained uh, to, yeah. <laughs> to think of it as anything else. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of where I've been. Um, but like, you know, overall it's really hard to like I thought about, and I have not really had time to do it, of, like, journaling every day, basically. Like, what was my fucking route through Elden Ring today? Because it is such a crazy series of, like, you know, there are, it's it's a common thing that open world games, will, and we'll talk about this with most open world games, that, you know, you get distracted along the way and find something cool. But it's just such a different, like, level of thing in Elden uh-huh. Ring. Because, yeah. you know, Sean, you talked about, like, being up an hour later every night. It's like the other night, I had to get up early to, to work to go teach um and i had wrapped up a part in elden ring where i thought okay this is a good place to stop and it's a responsible and it's it's like 12 30 at night that's good that'll be good and then i was like riding on my way to just like finish something and i found a cave i'm like that cave looks cool and i went in that cave and i came out 90 minutes later yeah. <laughs> you know and at 90 minutes later, I had almost enough souls to level up, so I might as well go to this spot that's good for grinding and get enough souls to fully level up, right? And uh, that's how you go to bed at 3 a.m. Yeah, because it's, it's, cause one of the things is that sometimes, you know, you, you stumble on, like, a catacomb or something, and it's just a quick little, you know, get in, get out, it's a 10-minute thing, you go, you fight a boss, you get a little, like, Ash of War or something, that a little prize, and it's like, oh, that's cool. And then sometimes you stumble on those things... And, like, the presentation of it immediately is, like, almost identical. And then you keep going and you keep going. You're like, oh, this is a lot more than just a random catacomb or random tower or whatever. This is, like, there's a whole deal down here. Um, Yeah, you definitely could end up just stumbling on shit where you think it's going to be 10 to 15 minutes. Because you think you know what's going to be there. And, uh, yeah, even after playing God knows how much Elden Ring at this point or the past two weeks, uh, like, it it is... surprises me constantly like it is like it it has not stopped having the like every 10 minutes you're going what the fuck is that like that is still (laughs) happening all the time i had a big one yesterday in the caleb wastes where i saw what uh, i thought was like is that a giant is that like a giant face not just a big face not just not even just a giant face is that like a titanically colossal gigantic face over there or am i just seeing uh-huh. things like that yep. like no that's just an insanely gigantic colossal face and then i started thinking putting two and two together i'm like wait where is this on the map 
Where is this on? Have you discovered any of like the like underground stuff, like the deep underground stuff? Yeah, like the seal yeah. for a well area. Like, uh-huh, yeah. So oh I I started looking at the map and looking at where the gigantic face was, and then I started looking at the other map and looking at where the gigantic face was, and I started putting two to two together, and I think I know what the gigantic colossal fucking evil giant face thing is. Um, and and it's like that, but that's just a constant experience. It's just this constant like, what the fuck is this thing? What the fuck is that thing? Oh God, what is this monster? What is this horrifying thing I've run into? It's like, oh, is this going to be a whole area? I thought this was just this little thing. It's like, what is this standing in front of this tree? What the fuck are you? What is this person? What are you saying? Where are you pointing me to go? What the fuck is this weapon? Like, it's just constant surprises. (laughs) And over like 30 plus hours of playing the game, 40 hours of playing the game, God knows how much time I've spent on it. Um, But it is, I don't think I've ever played a game um, that has like done this of having so much like surprise and um, like so much kind of mystery and discovery to it that is still constantly fresh. Um, and and it is that thing that, as you say, Jonathan, like you, you think you're or whatever, like you go to a cave and like, oh, like I'll just check this out. And then you end up in this two hours later and you're like, what the fuck have I done? I have to get up in right. the morning. I have to do this stuff, um, but I can't stop playing Elden Ring. Totally. Um, you know, the only other games that to me are comparable in that sense of like surprise is the the broad genre of like the sort of Metroid style exploration games for me, of which I include Dark Souls, like uh-huh. yeah, um, and and Metroid Prime and and some of the two D versions as well. Um, and it's why that's like broadly my favorite genre of game is I love the sort of like you know, lightly guided or unguided exploration games where it's all about you sort of navigating yourself and finding cool shit and piecing stuff together. That's my favorite kind of game. I love it. And what Elden Ring has done, I I think Elden Ring is very much built on the bones of that kind of thing, but it has exploded it outwards in a million directions. And it's incredible. You know, one influence on this game in interesting ways is is Breath of the Wild, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever seen, Sean, or, or other people have seen, it's, it, I don't know if it was a GWC talk or where it was, but it was the talk where the Breath of the Wild developers talked about how they designed the map to make people interested in exploring it. And it was mm-hmm. a lot of, like, they realized triangle shapes that, that, like, covered things, but as you moved, you would see the, like, you know, distances change that made you want to explore. I think very clearly they studied some of that stuff for Elden Ring because Elden Ring is very, very good at laying out the map in such a way that you are constantly seeing things in the distance that you want to find and on your way there, you find other things you want to find. It's really good at that. Um, I think even better than Breath of the Wild was in kind of building that out. The difference is just the sheer density of the stuff you find along the way and the, the verticality of it and all of that. Um, it's a really cool evolution of another game I really loved. Um, and, and an interesting way it's it's like... Because this game obviously has influences from a lot of different areas, um, but all pulling it into such a very FromSoft you know, experience. Yeah, for me, as someone who like respected Breath of the Wild but didn't particularly enjoy it, like uh, Elden Ring, I think I kind of talked about this at the very end of our discussion last week, is that Elden Ring is, I think, the game I, I had wished that Breath of the Wild was in the sense of like El- playing Elden Ring. Honestly, I feel like I think of Ocarina of Time sometimes more than I even think of Dark Souls in the sense of like that that feeling of riding around my horse in an open world and not knowing what I'm going to discover is so like the kind of like 
you know, presiding memory of my time playing Ocarina of Time as a kid. Um, and, and the sense of that, like every corner of that world was like so unique and there's so many different weird monsters and weapons and tools and, and mysteries to uncover. And I think the thing that always bothered me with Breath of the Wild is that with some, like with some notable exceptions, but in general, the only real things that that game had to reward the player were shrines, Korok seeds, um, disposable weapons, which weren't really a reward because they, you know, they, it was just basically picking up like shotgun shells in a first person shooter because it was just, you use it 10 times or whatever and it breaks. Um, and then sometimes clothing and that like never, it, that never really interested me that much because I think the shrine problem of Breath of the Wild just so killed for me the fantasy of what was happening because it was always what the answer was to what is on that mountaintop or what is behind this corner? What is the, going to be at this weird section of the map? Like nine times out of 10, it was, here's a little weird hut that will load you into a different segmented area of the game where you solve a little puzzle and you get the exact same little orb that you can spend on stamina or health. And it just killed for me the, the fantasy of the exploration of that game because I felt like nine times out of 10, when I turned around a corner, I knew what I was going to find. And Elden Ring has all the same stuff I loved about the way the map is constructed visually and designed that Breath of the Wild had, which is stuff you're talking about, how they use silhouettes and the horizon so effectively uh, that there's always something on the horizon. You're looking at big things and small things. Like in Elden Ring, the little towers, or like not towers, like statues of like the like skeletal guys with their hand pointing a direction that you can go up to and they'll kind of guide you towards a catacomb or something like that. Like those stand out on the horizon in this way that they catch your attention. So it's very good at using natural visual language in like contrast of negative space using the horizon to guide you. And then also big notable landmarks, which are the different towers and castles that always orient you where you are physically on the map. Which, which Breath of the Wild did very well with some of its major towns in the giant mountains that you always knew without looking at the map screen where you were in the game world because there were always very distinctive landmarks that oriented you at all times. And then the other thing that Breath of the Wild had that I thought was great that Elden Ring takes and the way the game is built makes it way better for me, which is the map is just a literal map. It's just yes, a, top yes. it's a topographical map, right? So you can look at the map and use that to guide you um, more purposely if you really want to go through with a fine-tooth comb because you can look at the topographical map and figure out one pathways around the world and two like notable locations where it's like there's a weird clearing here or there's a big tree over here or there's a like a strange geometric pattern on the map that indicates there's a village or something in this direction and you can use that to guide you rather than it just being you know, you go to a vendor and buy a Ubisoft style collectibles map or something that just pops every single interesting location on, on the in-game world map and you just like use that to check off a checklist. The All those different things of the landmarks, the horizon and the topographical map guide you in your exploration. But whereas in Breath of the Wild for me, I very rarely found something that was interesting when I turned the corner. In Elden Ring, as I said, I like, I'm constantly being shocked and amazed at stuff I find and, and not understanding what I find immediately, either in like gameplay senses with enemies and boss types or in like a narrative sense of where I'm like, God, why is this enemy here? And doing that Dark Souls detective work of sort of like piecing together narratively what's happening. Because there's basically always some sort of logic constructing where enemies are, why items are where they are. That kind of stuff is very meticulous in the way that Dark Souls games have always been. Um, and that like narrative processes 
um, extremely rewarding. And then also the just in-game rewards as a player are oftentimes very unique and exciting and interesting. And you get different weapons that can change the way you play. Um, obviously you get experience that is extremely valuable because the game is challenging and so it's like you constantly wanting to get more powerful getting new trinkets can totally change up the way you play the game getting golden seeds and getting better or more SS flasks or upgrading your SS flasks getting different spells getting different summons like getting different armor there's so many different kinds of rewards that are unique and distinct that the game can present to you that you're constantly getting something and feeling rewarded for taking the effort to go out and explore every single nook and cranny you run into and that to me as someone who is kind of disappointed in breath of the wild is the thing that like i play elden ring that gives me that ocarina of time like distinct and singular open world experience that i've kind of always wanted and almost no other games have ever been able to like to close to kind of like replicating that feeling for me yeah i think the like easiest elevator pitch i could give to someone on elden ring is it's ocarina of time plus breath of the wild plus dark souls like that mm -hmm. is the closest using existing games i feel like i could yeah. come to the specific equation that this game is doing because you're right and and i even think it's down to like you know if you missed in breath of the wild the more like in-depth designed dungeons of Ocarina of Time and the other Zelda games in that lineage, which you kind of had with the giant beast, but it was a really different yeah. thing. Um, well, Elden Ring does that with like the legacy dungeons, the Stormvale Keep and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Um, and and other places you will find randomly and realize this is a uh -huh. long, this is going to take me a while. This is fun. Let's get down to business. <laughs> you know, um, I always love, that's always a moment I have in FromSoft games is the, oh, this is a thing. Well, let's uh, crack my knuckles and get down to business on this. Let's go to work. But no, it's, yeah. and it's got all of that. And then obviously, you know, it does have all of the, a lot of the stuff, you know, we all love about Dark Souls. Although, I, you were hinting at this just now, Sean, when you were talking about all the kinds of rewards you can get. I do think the more I play this game, the more I realize how different it is than Dark Souls. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing about that is, like, this is, you know... We've talked before about how there's kind of the FromSoft division of their, like, sort of open RPGs in the Souls formula. And then they're more sort of focused action games where, like, Bloodborne was kind of the first of that. And then Sekiro really goes all in yeah. on that. This is such an open game because I think it's really fundamental that you learn. And I think you're right about like where they put uh, Margit, the, the first like boss you have, and that it's particularly hard. And the things they encourage you to like, like, like they also put like a big boss in the starting area that you cannot possibly beat yeah. right away. The big guy on the horseback um, to like force you to like go explore because Every couple hours in Elden Ring, you're going to find something that could completely change up your playstyle, And that's very different than Souls games. Like, I have not started to invest in magic yet, but I feel like that's the next step for me because I've yeah. found so much cool magic shit. I've never used magic in Souls games. I don't really entirely know even how it works, but there's so much cool stuff around that that I feel like I want to. And even before then... All of the Ashes of War and Summons, which are just work completely differently than like Summons in the other Souls games, like made me put points into my mana bar, which is FP yeah. in this game, that I've never done in Souls games before. And like I've even, you know, kept an FP flask and stuff like that. And I have an Ash of War that I've been using for a while now. It's this blood strike one where you do this big wind-up. and Yes. That has, like, I don't know if I could go back and play one of the Souls games without that because it's become so central to my play style. But there's a million things like that. And it's just stuff you'll find in the world unguided 
that gives you tools to like totally change up your playstyle and something you think seems impossible you might be able to find certain puzzle pieces that you can put together to your for yourself that make a playstyle that will unlock this for you we've talked a lot Sean about how all the souls games you know have lots of built-in stuff to make it quote unquote easier for you if you want to play with it that way obviously there's the famous stuff like get on this bridge in demon souls and shoot the dragon a thousand times with an arrow and like yeah. that's one fun kind of you know cheesing thing but there've always been summons and little things you can do to kind of mitigate stuff and i think elden ring really blows that open and is constantly encouraging you you know i think elden ring more than any of the others would say no there's no such thing as cheesing in this game yeah. Anything you do is legitimate, unless you're hacking the game or something. It's all in there for you. Do with this toy box what you want to do. And the game is built to let you play with those toys. And that's what's so fun and rewarding about it. Yeah, I think, and I think like some of like the, the you know, the requisite annual uh, from software difficulty discourse uh, that we unfortunately have to suffer all the time. And I'm very tired of seeing it. I think Elden Ring does make it interesting because because the nature of it being an open world game means that there's such a like broader range of what like is difficult or isn't difficult in Elden Ring. Yes. Because I think one thing I love about it, and I think one thing that's very rich that it brings that changes the dynamic of Dark Souls is that by expanding the sort of like empty space between the very like focused, very hard, intense, you know, resource driven exploration of a soul's you know, like castle or dungeon area where you're like constantly battling. How many SS flasks do I have? How long is it till the next uh, bonfire? Can I get a like, unlock a like sort of side path or something that gets me back around so I can get back here faster? And that kind of like the almost like rogue light esque experience of losing your souls and having to like rebuild up progress again, all that kind of stuff is in the game. But the stuff in between that is so much bigger. And it's so much easier because you have a horse that is incredibly powerful and very effective. Um, and little things of just like being able to regenerate Estus flasks um, by destroying, killing groups of enemies out in the open world that makes exploring like not punishing at all and instead like very rewarding because you're not constantly having to stop at bonfires or something like that in order to survive. Um, those things make it so that just riding around in the open world and discovering things in most areas, there's a couple of areas that are more oppressive, like the Scarlet Rot swamps and stuff like that, that are like sort of halfway between open world and more of like a kind of almost like a light dungeon or something. But in general, it just means that you can ride around and discover things and get into Dark Souls hijinks um, without having the like pressure of like the difficulty of the game on you at all times that that frees it up. And it means that, like, for me, that then you become so much more powerful and so much more comfortable using a wider range of the abilities available to you that I'm with you, Jonathan. Like, I'm someone who, you know, I've talked about every time I've played a Dark Souls game, I always end up in the same exact character build, which is using the Uchigatana as my main weapon, leveling up Dex, Darity as, like, my main stat, obviously, with, like, Vitality and Endurance. Um, using a shield that blocks 100% physical damage and then using that in rolling to kill enemies and then having a bow since that also scales with dexterity as like my sort of like, you know, backup option for tricky enemies or cheesing a scenario or stuff like that. Um, and that's how I've always played these games. I never really paid attention much to magic. The Ashes of War concept is like an evolved and expanded version of a thing that Dark Souls 3 had. And Dark Souls 3, I almost never used it because I was like, I don't want to put points in FP. Because any 
point I put there is a point I didn't put somewhere else that is more like efficient for my build. And I've totally blown up that build in a lot of that play style that I'm now mostly dual wielding. I found a Wakizashi, which is like a small, like kind of dagger version of a katana. Um, and there are some weapons that when paired, um, you get special dual wielding attacks if you use L1 with them and you have both of them equipped. Um, so like usually it's like two weapons of the same type will do it. So like two long swords will. This is like a special instance because they're two particular weapons that Ushigaten and Wakizashi will do that. And so I've been using that mostly not using the shield as much. I've started doing Dragon Communion, so I ate a Dragon Heart, and I have a Dragon Communion seal that I also have in my <laughs> left hand that I sometimes use to use Dragon Magics, um, and um, I've used very liberally the Ashes of War, and I've used a bunch. I think the one I always come back to, because I think it's just the most fun, it's the coolest, is the Unsheath ability, because that's just super fucking fun, and it feels incredibly cool when you use it well. Because um, that's just that katana ability and you're like Rurouni Kenshin or some shit and you sheathe your sword and then do some like Batojutsu, you draw a sword cut dude type action and that's very good. I used the blood one for a while, um, but but I just have like a much more expanded broad character build. And once I got to a place where I was comfortable with my dexterity and stamina and vitality, I've mostly been putting points into mind, which is your mana basically, your FP, and then faith, which is what levels up like faith type magics which is what most of the dragon stuff is there's also intellect magic which is like sorceries and that's like a different path that you could also pick um but i've been having a lot of fun using the f like a much fuller range of what the game has available to you because it's much easier to level up because it's like much easier to experiment and not feel like I'm wasting time or I'm going to get killed and lose a bunch of shit because I'm in the middle of a dungeon and I don't want to bother trying to figure out how this weapon works or that spell works because I need to be as efficient as possible. The game gives you so much more leeway to experiment um, that, and it has so much more stuff in it, including the summons, which are so much fun. Um, and I, I vastly prefer that to summoning an actual player because it's like more narratively built into the game that I'm summoning like a pack of wolves or whatever I'm, I'm bringing in and that like is very satisfying. All that stuff has changed the way I play uh, a Dark Souls game completely. Um, and that's something that I've really enjoyed. Having come into the game basically intending to play it identically to Dark Souls and then finding that like I don't need to because the game is much more accommodating of you switching around and trying out different stuff. Yeah, I and I'm actually writing notes on some of what you're saying because I'm like, ooh, I need to try that, you know, like because I have found that uh, Washigatana or whatever it's called the Wakizashi or Wakizashi, yeah, that I have found that, and I know that'll go. I was I was combining that with Uchigatana. They're two different things, but I can I can combine those two, and that sounds fun. And I have eaten one dragon heart, um, but I have not done anything with it yet. And uh, I, I yeah, put a couple points into faith, and that would be very fun. Um, it's yeah. Yeah, my favorite spell I have, because it's the most edgelord shit possible, and it just is very effective, is I found... I don't know where I found it, um, but I found a spell called the Blood Flame Blade, um, which <laughs> is a uh, faith spell that enchants your right-hand weapon. Um, and basically, because what it does is it increases the bleeding effect your weapon does. Um, so that's like a thing that the katana-type weapons do, and a lot of like the curved swords in the game do where if you build up enough of a bleeding status effect on an enemy, or it can happen to you, it does a huge burst of damage, which is particularly effective against bosses, because most normal enemies, they'll die before you get that on them. Um, but the Blood Flame Blade 
increases that effect on your weapon um and but it does it by setting the sword on fire with this like deep scarlet flame and when you cut them it sets the enemy on fire but it doesn't do any fire damage it just causes them to bleed and it's conceptually it's the most like i feel like my dude's arm like right arm should be wrapped in like bandages or something and it's like <laughs> oh i like he and you it's like ah oh, the seal the dragon that i've sealed inside of me that re- unleashes the blood flame blade um it's it's very fun playing like a uh, anime edgelord in <laughs> dark souls <and> yes <laughs> summoning dragon magics and using my blood flame blade to kill you know weird giant monsters and shit but uh that yeah that's, i've been having so much fun playing around with all that stuff and i feel like the way I play the game has changed so much over the course of the past week and is constantly changing as I discover new things in a way that previous Souls games were so punishing in that, like, you've got so few upgrade materials, you got so precious few souls that it was so hard to ever feel like you could experiment or change your build halfway through the game. And now, like, you're showered with different upgrade materials, particularly to at least get your weapon up to a decent point. Um, if not necessarily like that, the top level, like ultimate upgraded versions. Um, and that is something that like has just, I think, been a very welcome change that uh, has made this game very rich and very different feeling to Dark Souls. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's I don't think I've completely transformed my build as much as you have, Sean. But even for me, it's stuff like I just have stopped using shields and I'm mm-hmm. just two-handing with my Uchigatana, and I am rolling around, and I've been using that, you know, blood magic thing where it, like, does the big swipe, and that's been... Because that can also take out, like, groups of enemies, which has been very helpful in some areas. And it's been really good on some bosses and stuff like that. It's a risk-reward thing, because it does a little bit of damage to you, but it's, like, very fun to keep an eye on. Um, And then using summons. Like, summons in Dark Souls were sort of like an option of last resort for some bosses where you would summon in either a player or something like diegetically in the world. Um, it wasn't a normal part of your arsenal, right? Yeah. Um, and now you like collect summons and you don't just collect summons, you collect them for like cool narrative world reasons. My favorite thing I've done in this game so far was a very long series of events that I can't possibly describe all the steps of that got me to the underground CO for a well area and mm-hmm. all of that and eventually found this boss. There's a whole series of things you have to do, but it's the it's the um, uh, um, ancient spirit or the what is yeah. it called? the ancestor spirit. Yes. Which is, uh, I, I won't spoil it, it's a cool horse. It's my favorite boss in the game so far. Yeah, I, it's yeah. like narratively that whole area is super... It felt super revelatory. That's where I think a lot of the world building of Elden Ring like really snapped into place for me um, and some of the stuff it's doing. And yes, like that boss, the music, the design. Yes. Because like, I didn't find that boss particularly hard personally because I probably found it later no. than you because I, I found him pretty easily. So I was like very leveled up. So I like really fucked him up. Um, but that felt awful because I'm like, I don't want to really kill you like this. I know. Yeah. Really bad. Um, but then but then you, he drops an ancestral follower as a spirit. And, and I have also been mainly using that because it felt very narratively yes. like, 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 I feel like I went on this journey. I learned a lot about these people. Um, and then like, I'm, I'm, I'm have my ancestral follower with me because we both like, I'm taking with this memory of like this experience I had that has like kind of changed some of the way I look at the world. Yes. 
No, totally. And and that is what I've done. The ancestor, like spirit, their follower has been my main summon for most of the game. I've used other ones. I used like last night when I was fighting Rinala in of the Moon uh, yes. in the in the in the academy. I, I used the wolves because they kind of which seem like a low level summon, but what they do is they mob and stagger her, which mm-hmm. is helpful. So stuff like that. Uh, that was a little tip from my brother because I was we were talking while I was playing that. Um, but there's all sorts of stuff, and, and it's it's constantly... So, like, even if I'm not using every summon, I just like having my little collection of summons. Like, oh, I fought this jellyfish dude, and I got this fucking cool jellyfish summon, and it's super sweet. I don't use it all the time, but I love that I've got it in my back pocket, you know? It's stuff like that that is super cool. And you've got all the talismans that you find, and yep. those usually have some kind of, like narrative or a narrative accepting that means something a little different in FromSoft. Some like yeah. kind of world impact to you of like, I remember where I found this. It's very useful to my build. I'm going to put this on. You know, you're. I feel like you're constantly like finding stuff like that. And so the, the kind of your fighting style and everything you do becomes kind of a reflection of where you've gone through the world and what you've found and what order you've done things in because it's like shaped you into how you're playing it now, you know? Um, even down to stuff like uh, the other side of that is I use the, because the samurai class starts with the big long bow, and I've used that so much, and I've, you know, bows in the other Souls games, I think, were what you were describing, Sean, is that's your cheese weapon of, okay, I'm going to sit here with 100 arrows and just kill this dragon slowly over the course of the next hour while I listen to a podcast, right? Yeah, or it's just like a utility thing of, oh, there's like an annoying flying enemy that it's just easier with the bow, or like right. you can use it to pull enemies by doing damage to them from a distance. It's just like a like an, an extra little thing that gives you a couple of additional options uh, in yes. traditionally in Souls games. And I've done it for all of that stuff in this game, but also I've learned ways to just a, mm-hmm. a, do a boss fight with it. Yeah. Like, I fought a dragon the other day, and it wasn't the, I'm going to hide on this hill and hit the dragon from afar. It was, I'm up with the dragon fighting with my bow, and that's how I'm going to defeat it. And it felt kind of like how I was supposed to do it, because the sword wasn't doing a whole lot to it on its legs, which had, like, very scaly, you know, like, leathery soles that I couldn't really beat through. Um, and I was like, this is cool as shit. I love this, you know? Yeah, I've been using the bow more liberally as well. Like, that, there are some enemies in, in a couple of bosses where it has felt, as you say, like, not that the bow is, like, the designed way, because there are so many ways you could fight enemies, but especially if you don't have magic, there are, there are enemy types that it feels like you really do need to have some sort of ranged option, or you're going to really struggle. Um, and, and it's just more... It's just, it's very satisfying being able to use the bow more actively, which I think like it feels like they've adjusted some of the timing and stuff to make that slightly easier in this one. Um, and some like the lock on and stuff like that feels a little bit better because the bow always felt extremely clunky to me to use for anything other than sitting in a spot using the aim view and going pop 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 and just standing there <laughs> with it. This yes. it feels better to be able to roll, fire off an arrow, roll again, like that kind of stuff is much more doable. Yes. Um... Okay, I want to talk about the difficulty discourse for a second here, Sean. Uh-huh. Because there might be listeners yelling at the podcast right now, Jonathan, weren't you just... Yeah, shut up. A couple of years ago, there is a podcast, yep. like hundreds of episodes ago now, because this is going... To, yeah, pre-Sekiro, pre-Dark, pre-me playing Dark Souls, like any yes. of this, where I got in on the difficulty discourse and was complaining like, you know, I, I thought it sounded stupid to me the way Souls fans talked about how there couldn't possibly be difficulty options. I want to say very clearly for the record, I was wrong in what I said. I'm an adult. I can say that. I was wrong. Because the thing, and and here's the thing. I know why I was wrong. If you are someone who's played a lot of video games but never touched the FromSoft world, 
I do think it can be weird the way people talk about the difficulty because it's a different it's just a different kind of thing. Like yeah. my point of comparison was I was talking about how Fire Emblem eventually split into having the classic and casual difficulties and that was fine. And I was right. That was fine for Fire Emblem. The thing about Souls games is it literally would be impossible to implement a difficulty thing and I think especially on Elden Ring more than any of them. Because it's all built into the game. It, the game really never, like, plops you down in front of something and says, here, with what you have directly right now, beat it right like this, you know? There's always been things in Souls games to help ameliorate and help you learn and help you get stuff. And that is part of what makes them magical. You couldn't implement difficulty options. And especially in Elden Ring, because so much of what this game is is going around and exploring, and the whole idea of difficulty is different. Like earlier in this podcast, you talked about how when you got to Godric the Grafted, you just bodied him because you'd done a bunch of stuff. For me, he, was, he wasn't the hardest boss ever, but he was tough. He took me about an hour of tries to mm -hmm. beat, and I had a lot of, I thought it was a great boss, but it was definitely challenging. So we had different experiences with it. How would you implement a difficulty slider into that? It's just not possible. It's not what this game is. Yeah, because, like, similarly, like, instead of Godric the Grafted, the boss I really struggled on was, like, just a mini boss in a random dungeon that's in the Kaylee West. Like, you might have fought him because he's, like, it's a gladiator guy that's in a dungeon that there's, like, a bunch of um, immolated corpses that can explode that are, like, in these cells. So if you've seen, I don't know if you've yes, seen Yes, yes, I love that. That's one of my favorite yeah. caves. I love that. Yeah, so I found that, like, three hours into the game. And I oh, fought the shit. gladiator dude at the bottom of that thing. And, like, that took me, like, an hour plus to fight this gladiator guy, who, again, is not a... I mean, he is a named boss, and that all bosses have names. But he's not, like... He doesn't get a big cutscene, and, like, you don't get a no. great rune or anything. Like, he is a boss version... He, he's, like, one of, like, a couple of kind of templated bosses that they can use for some of those more sort of standard little dungeons and stuff. Um, but because I was leveled... 12 15 something like that at that point i was very early in the game um i that was the one where i was like no i want to fight this guy particularly because i think he wasn't a main boss i got very stubborn about it uh, that where it's like <laughs> with margie the fellow and i'm like oh i should go i'm i'm smart i'm not going to be dumb and just run my head against this boss over and over again i'm smart i'm going to go off on adventures and get stronger and then come back because i felt like that's what the game was trying to do but then i was just like this is just a gladiator man with a big axe like i could fucking beat this guy and then i fought him for like an hour but, like, if you fought that dude, I'm sure that that was, like... Like, like for me, most bosses in those things are, like, I barely remember because it's just, oh, yeah, and then I fought this weird shade, and I he fought this pumpkin man, and then I fought this, like, big cat statue. Um, and, you, and, it's, and it was, like, a thing I died maybe once, or I didn't die at all and, and won that fight. Um, but for me, because of the specific way in which I encountered him, that gladiator was, like, a hill I had to climb, I felt like, to kind of, like, fully put my, like you know, soul shoes on or like get that back and like feel like I'm, I'm really doing it when really I should have left and gotten stronger and come back. But I feel like most people are going to have totally different versions of that, of different things to encounter in different orders that they like stubbornly like fight against and overcome and you get that experience. But everyone's going to have a different one of those because of the very open freeform way that Elden Ring is designed. Yeah. You know, that boss for me was... Uh, it took me like maybe one or two just to learn the moves and then I did it. The getting to him was harder than him like because there's uh -huh. there's a lot of like exploding enemies and shit, right? Yeah. Um, no, and there's stuff all over the place like that. And 
yeah, it's 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 just such a weird discussion because I think if you're used to normal games, I, I hate to sound like an elitist here, but if you're used to like other kinds of games, it might sound alien, but it really is when you play it's like, yeah, there's no you know, with even with something like Sekiro, which you and I both agree, hardest game we've ever beat, very hard game. Yeah. No one's gonna deny that. But if you did something to like one, I don't think you really could change that because the game is so tightly designed, but if you did it would change what Sekiro is, because Sekiro is the game version of being a martial arts character in a movie and learning to get past the mountain in front of you, right? It is, you know, there. there's going to be a lot of Demon Slayer games in the years to come, and none of them will simulate the feeling of Tanjiro yeah. actually overcoming one of his hills, as well as, like, any boss in Sekiro does, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I tend to agree with you on this, that, like, the design of these games is so tight in exacting... And that it's just like, particularly for like the Souls ones, I just don't know how you, you would really implement a difficulty option setting and have it work well. Like, I just feel like it would end up breaking the game very easily because the games, like, the games aren't really hard. They're just different. And you and it's like, it's and I think it's one of the things that's hard to talk about it and why people can come across as being like aggressive or elitist about it because it's like if you if you're not someone who's played a lot of the games it is hard to explain why the process of failing and being frustrated in like dying over and over at this boss like why that that frustration is an inherent part of the experience not because like this is like the most difficult thing i've ever done in my life but because like the game is designed for you to fail in specific ways or for you to like struggle against the thing fail multiple times struggling against the same thing learning from that failure and then overcoming it in victory is the design process so it's not about it being very hard it's about the process of you struggling and then ultimately succeeding and i don't know how you could tune it particularly well with like difficulty options um, without making it too easy because like most Souls games, like most of the stuff isn't actually that hard once you get a little bit into it. Most bosses you clear on a couple of tries. It's only the handful that really are the ones you struggle against. And if you put in a difficulty option that made it easier, I think most like basically competent players would steamroll through the game if like the numbers were more in your favor because it's not nearly as hard as you think it is. Right, and I, I've come to totally agree with this, Sean. I and, and honestly, like that's one of the areas where I think for both of us, Dark Souls 2 fell down is yeah. something was off about that, and you mm -hmm. and I both steamrolled through that game, and it's boring, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I there was a tweet from a, a person I followed today that I just wanted to read, because I think it summarizes this very well. This is Sean, S-H-A-U-N, not you, but the video essayist on YouTube just did a really good Harry Potter video essay that I highly I saw recommend. That. Yeah, that's phenomenal stuff. Very good. Um, very good. But, very haunting, but very good. Video very good, yeah. But but he had a tweet this morning. He said, IMO, FromSoft games aren't that hard compared to other games. In terms of story progression, they're just designed around killing the player to teach them things. So if you go in with the mindset that dying equals failure, they'll seem harder than they are. It can take a while to click, coming from other games balanced around the player dying being the failure state. But there are levels in Mario games that give me much more trouble than most FromSoft bosses. Mm -hmm. Um... And, and he also talked about, like, Horizon Forbidden West, you know, if you respawn at a checkpoint or something, it's jarring, it breaks immersion, because Aloy didn't actually die there. Um, and, and you know, because of that, Horizon doesn't want you to do that a hundred times, right? So it's a different kind of thing. Um, yeah. But but I think this is a very good way to describe it, because I totally agree with that. I hadn't actually thought of it that way. There are absolutely Mario games I've played that I think are harder 
than Dark Souls or or Dark Souls Two or Demon Souls or now Elden Ring, the ones I've played. Not Sekiro. Sekiro is the hardest game, but like. With these other ones, um, like Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze, that is a harder game to finish than most Souls games, I think. It's just, it's light and colorful, and so we think of it differently. Um, but this also goes to, like, what you and I have talked about, Sean, that I think there's a whole, like, level of, like, humor in these games that I think yeah, if you huh? haven't played them, you don't really see. Um, because it's not there on the box art, you know? It's not there in the title. Um, but yeah, I, I think, and I think the proof is in the pudding here of, like, Elden Ring would not be selling the numbers it's selling right now if it was a crazy hard edgelord game that, like, only crazy gamers who, like, talk on message boards could beat, right? Yeah, if it if it demanded the level of, like, technical mastery that I think, like, the discourse implies but is not actually there, that, like, it's always just... It's, it's the thing that's been so annoying about, like, the it being one of, like, the cycles of discourse in video games along with, like, you know our video games art and like all the kinds of nonsense <laughs> questions that just like yeah. inevitably come up over and over and over again. It's just because it feels misaligned because it's like different groups of people talking about fundamentally different things that like that, that example of like Mario games, or I very recently just like as a palate cleanser between finishing um, forbidden horizon one and replaying through that game and Elden Ring coming out, I very quickly replayed through uncharted one and two because I eventually want to replay for, and Lost Legacy because they put out those PS5 versions. So like, right. And I can yeah. play through those games so fast, right? It's like a six-hour campaign or whatever if you played them before. Um, and in those games, like, I didn't die much because I've played them already. But in Uncharted, it's very frustrating when you die because it feels wrong. It feels like you're not supposed to die. And it's like, it's a fundamental break in what's happening. And, it, and if you die too much in Uncharted, I think it, like, ruins the entire flow of the game. And kind of like when I first played the games on ps3 i didn't like them that much because i think i was playing the combat poorly because i was playing it like a cover shooter and less of an active game which i think it is it just doesn't teach you that particularly well and i died a bunch in like key sections that then ruined the flow of it and i kind of like didn't see why the games were like that much and then when i played it again and kind of changed my style and, and and was a lot better and didn't die nearly as much the game was so much fun because it all flowed together well and it's like that's what 99% of games are designed with that kind of philosophy in mind, particularly nowadays. Back in, like, the arcade years, like, it was a different thing and stuff like that. And, like, the lives-based thing that Mario games are traditionally based on is, like, like some of that stuff is a little bit different. Um, but with most modern games, death is just, like, a thing that's really not supposed to happen to you. Um, and it's more of a threat rather than it being, like, an inevitability. And in Souls games, it's inevitability that you have to learn from and struggle through and grow beyond. And it's like, it's an integral part of the whole cycle of the game. And so it's a thing that, I'm not saying that difficulty modes would be completely impossible, but they would be completely different in a Souls game where you to try to implement it than in something else. Like, I think you could have easier versions of the game or like more accessible versions that provided more options and stuff like that but you'd have to rethink it it's not the same thing as an enemy has these enemies now have 50 percent as much health and you do 150 percent damage or whatever like a difficulty mode in uncharted or halo does um for those kinds of games that works well for dark souls i don't know what an easy mode would look like because it would be so much harder to implement and have it fit the design philosophy of the game this is why it's so crucial, and I think it's probably so crucial for Miyazaki as a designer, that everything in the world of Dark Souls is diegetic. 
uh-huh. like the 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 very act of respawning, which in some sense is the simplest video game mechanic because it's been there from the beginning. For Miyazaki and the FromSoft team, that has to not just be diegetic, but so built into the narrative that it's kind of what the games are about. And I think a lot of that is to help you ease into like what the game's like approach to death is, which isn't punishment, right? Um, and this is there even in Sekiro and their more action-focused games, right? You know, it's yeah. really, really important that you understand in Sekiro that like you dying and going back to this spot isn't a rupture in the game's diegesis, right? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of stuff like that that it's like this is why it's so crucial for these games. Yeah, that it's but, a natural flow state. It's, it is how yeah. it's designed. It's like all of that is a part of what the game is. It's about this like apocalyptic cycle of d- like death and rebirth and struggling against failure and trying to overcome it. Like that's yeah. thematically, that's what all these games are about. Yeah, but anyway, Elden Ring is just a fucking great game. I don't, we should probably like cap the conversation around here so we have time to talk about Batman. We will have plenty of time to talk about Elden Ring in the weeks to come. There's but one, is, one, yeah, there's one thing I want to talk about quickly, just because I feel like I don't want to forget it, because it's the thing sure. I have in the back of my hand to talk about on this week, um, which is related to some of the stuff of like discovering the the underground that one underground area. Although there yes. are other ones also, but like that was like that's the main one I found, um, and kind of the story and what that like I think has clicked into place for me, like why the setting of Elden Ring is like doing a lot more for me than the more sort of like. I don't like. I keep on wanting to use the word generic, which I feel like is the wrong term because Dark Souls fantasy is very particular. But it's like, but it's, but it's not historically or culturally specific. It is more just sort of like um, pulling in influences from other fantasy stuff, which is what Dark Souls has always been. Is here's a, some Lord of the Rings shit that we've made a little bit more fucked up. Here's some Berserk stuff. Some of which they make less fucked up somehow because Berserk is very fucked up. Um, but it's pulling in lots of that kind of reference point and creating its own version of dark fantasy through that. So the Dark Souls versions, like fantasy, isn't generic or standard in that way, but it's not historically or culturally rooted, really, um, or it's at least not consciously so. But with Elden Ring, we talked about a little bit last week that some of the stuff that feels like George R. R. Martin probably brought to the world building is it feeling much more culturally and historically specific and referential to real world cultures and real world histories that inform the fantasy world building. Um, and that particularly, like I talked about that there's like clearly some like, like Celtic influence in here, which is cool. Cause it gives it a very different flavor, particularly all the stuff with like the gods and the demigods is very kind of Celtic feeling because the Celtic gods are not, um, the, they're not like, this is the god of war, and this is the god of love, and this is the god of the harvest, or whatever. It's it's less of that, and more the gods are characters, or they're like people, um, that are more sort of full entities with like personalities and stuff that like have wars with each other and stuff like that. And so the depictions of gods and demigods and their effect on the world feels more kind of Celtic than um, usually we go to like Greek, Greco-Roman type stuff um, for that. Uh, and so all that is still there, but I think what really clicked for me in the stuff I've seen since over the past week uh, is not just that it's got some like Celtic stuff or here's some Anglo-Saxon stuff over here. Um, like you talked about, Jonathan, there's like some Beowulf feeling stuff, which is very true. And that's Anglo-Saxon. Um, but I think really what the game is doing is that it's pulling specifically from the like 
eighth ninth century like syncretic period of um like the british isles because it's kind of taking all of that stuff the anglo-saxon the, the celtic stuff um some of like the nordic stuff um like just generally like germanic mythology and celtic mythology and mixing it together but like there's like this period of really rich and like interesting syncretism syncretism meaning like the fusion or combining of two different like cultures or belief systems um that happened in that period which is where like you know english and like like english and british cultures and stuff like that in their modern form for a version come from where the english language comes from and that's the syncretism between the pagan um belief systems that were there in western europe and in the british isles which would be your celtic system and your germanic system so like the norse gods and stuff like that or the more german versions of all that norse stuff um and those were all these different pagan um beliefs and then you had the judeo-christian beliefs coming in through the romans right and so then you have this period where all of the real myths and things that we now have that are recorded in history that come from those cultures are not originally directly from those cultures. They are they come to us through monks that were Christian monks that were there and they recorded those because the Celts didn't have um, like technology to record their writing throughout history particularly effectively. And it's more how that stuff is all preserved because all the those myths were generally just like oral tales told orally and memorized by storytellers. The monks came in and they interacted and interfaced with those cultures and then wrote them down, right? And that's the source for stuff like Beowulf is not the original version of the story. It is a version of that story told to us by a Christian monk. And so inevitably there are Christian elements that are sort of fused into those stories. And in Beowulf, there are a couple of places that are like very obvious where the narrative voice changes very distinctly and introduces a more Judeo-Christian concept to sort of frame a very pagan non-Judeo-Christian story, which is Beowulf, because, you know, I don't remember the part in the Bible where God made fucking dragons or how Grindel's mother, the, <laughs> the, the mother of monsters, existed in a framework with Satan, right? So that stuff is clearly doesn't exist in a Judeo-Christian framework, but there are a couple passages that sort of like massage it into something that's a little bit more can exist alongside Christianity. And that's true of like all of those writings, like basically all the existing stuff that is old English from that period all has like this distinct quality of it where you're getting this story but you can tell that there are things that are christian that were grafted onto it and in the reverse there are things about christianity that then get changed because they're pulling from different pagan stories and so some of like the story of jesus christ is clearly changed or altered or like the way it's perceived is inflected by some Egyptian myths and by the myth of Balder from Norse mythology, because there's a lot of like, you know, the sacrificial son and martyrdom and stuff like that is a very common theme in a lot of different belief systems. Um, and so it's just this very interesting culturally rich period. And I feel like Elden Ring is pulling that. And that is what it is, is that it's not just here is like some monsters and some gods that feel vaguely Celtic or then here's like something that feels slightly more Anglo-Saxon. It's there is this like war at the game's heart between these two different versions of existence. One is this more Judeo-Christian type concept, which is the greater will, right? And like the fingers and all that stuff has this more kind of like Christian idea of this more like absent, vacant, inaccessible God or inaccessible um, entity. 
Um, and then you have this like pagan belief system and multiple different kinds of pagan belief systems, some of which are more animistic, which is what the ancestral followers were. And that's where it all clicked for me is that like, oh, the ancestral followers are like ancient Celts. They, they are druidic in their, in shamanistic in their religious practices and stuff like that. And their arrows, there's a great description if you read the description for the ancestral arrows, which is that like they all believed that um, spirits of small animals exist in the arrows, which is a very animistic um, kind of pagan belief. Um, and so all that stuff, there's like this really rich world building, not just about these kind of mythologies and their creatures, but the way that these different cultures are like frictiously trying to coexist. And then this one version is trying to supplant it and has buried physically different older pagan systems underneath the earth. And then like there's this last struggle of these like pagan style demigods that you are part of like a mission to exterminate in some way. Like obviously I don't know where the story is ultimately going to go, but that all of that is so fucking fascinating to me and is something that like I've always enjoyed the narrative stylings of Dark Souls games and enjoyed engaging with it to a certain level. But I've never been someone that's like obsessed with it outside of like Bloodborne I particularly liked because I like the Lovecraftian and Gothic horror stuff. But Dark Souls Dark Fantasy, I didn't never watch like the five hour YouTube videos explaining everything. But this is one because it's hitting stuff that I'm more specifically interested in. And I think it's just like tying it to this more historical cultural era um, and in referencing and kind of commenting on that and these like traditions of syncretism and of supplanting older faith systems and older cultures with like newer ones is very interesting to me. And that's stuff that I've been having a lot of fun kind of piecing together in, I think, informs the world building in this really rich way that gives it a very distinct flavor from other soul stuff. And I've, it must be the main thing that George R. R. Martin brought to the project because it is so the kind of shit you see in Game of Thrones and that like understanding of history is so strong um, that like that is the thing that like I'm very glad that he was involved in this on some level because I think it has made all of the more fantastical stuff so much richer by rooting it in something very concrete and, and, and interesting. Yeah, totally. I, I think that's all true. I love that you talked about all of that. You know, one of the things I thought about when you were saying all that is, you know, one of the things George R. R. Martin has talked about, he's, he is one who gives like these long flowing interviews where I actually mm -hmm. love watching videos of Martin because he's very, he yeah. just talks in an interesting way. And he's, he's talked a lot about Lord of the Rings and that obviously a huge influence on him. But he said the one thing he always thought Tolkien missed in his big mythology was religion that like what would the faiths in this world be uh and that that was very important to him in developing game of thrones and that's a huge part of that story is like what are the yeah. faiths and what are the religions that are warring and obviously and i feel like that's one of the places where i see martin's hand playing elden ring is exactly what you're talking about is that religious systems exist and you see how they are why they're important is because of how they're part of culture and space you know um and that's part of what's so cool and makes this world feel so alive yeah, and like, and it's all tied into like the different kinds of magics that exist in the world, and some of them are considered heretical by the fingers. But like, if you read some of the descriptions, because there's like a whole group of pyromancers that, like, you can find some of them. They're in like the Liurnia area, but they're from. If you read the item descriptions, they're from like somewhere way north. That there's, I assume, there's much, there's some other area of the map because they this these people must be somewhere that I assume you're going to explore later. Um, that scares me that there's like this whole other section beyond the borders of the map that I haven't even fucking seen yet. 
Um, but one thing that's interesting is you read some of those item descriptions for some of the pyromancy magic. It talks about how, like, at different points in history, it's been considered heretical, and then at different points, it's been non-heretical, right? That, like, sometimes when it's been useful for the, like, whatever the predominant, like, the fingers in the greater will and that kind of, like, Judeo-Christian framework, when it's been convenient, they have allowed it. And when it's inconvenient, they disallow it, which is very historically accurate to the way that Christianity and like most like predominant faiths have operated. Um, there's a like, pragmatic quality to that. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff that um, this is, you know, it's the, the meme about like the item descriptions in Dark Souls is like 110% true here. Like it's even better. And I'm very obsessively reading every single item I pick up. The first thing I do is I go <laughs> read the description. I recommend if you're someone who's playing it that's not doing that you have to because there's so much really good rich ideas hidden away in all that little flavor text wonderful and we haven't even talked about how there's a whole fucking knights of the round table room uh-huh. and off of that is a room with just two giant severed fingers talking yes. to you through a witch this game is this game is great yeah i love all the people in the round table they there's some yes. i don't know how much of that stuff you've done but some of those side quests like there's there's like a lot there in the way that like all of those people well not all of them but most of them are these like treacherous like very self-interested motherfuckers um and like you yeah. seeing the way that they there's like a lot of internal politics between the different figures at the round table and then some of the people you see in the world um that i'm i'm very excited to see because for most of those i feel like i'm like at the midpoint for some of these longer kind of side quests i'm very excited to see where that stuff goes because because it's um, all that's very interesting as well. Yeah, I've done a lot of like writing in my little notebook that I also have next to me playing this game of like, look out for this person because the person at the roundtable hold said that. I have, you know, one of the first things I did in the game because it's around Stormhold or the Stormvale area is the, the woman you meet who's had all her retainers that went up to Stormvale Castle um, to be grafted, but then you yes. find their bodies and you talk to her about it, and then she goes back to the keep with you. That whole thing I loved. I think that's yeah, a great so she character. Yeah, becomes the spirit tuner and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good stuff. Good stuff. All right, you want to move to some other good stuff and talk about the Batman? Yes, let's move on to the Batman. And you know, normally I make fun of movies that distinguish from earlier titles by just adding the definite article or removing the definite article the funniest one being suicide squad to the suicide squad yeah. or in the reverse the fast and the furious to fast and furious great stuff i think the batman very much earns this because this is the first movie that feels like we've got the goddamn batman on our screen yes no this is out of the like 10 batman movies that have been made this is the batman movie right uh, there are, yes. most of the batman movies have not been that good but even the ones that are good are not really batman movies because batman is barely in batman returns uh that's a catwoman movie that has batman as a supporting character which is not a bad thing like that's a great movie but it's just not really yes. a batman thing um and then obviously the 66 batman movie is fucking amazing but it's a it's a farce right so it's it's a right. very different kind of flavor um, and then everything else is like middling to bad um, and this is very good and it is The Batman yeah so this is directed by Matt Reeves who I've loved for a long time I, I love that he's getting his moment in the sun too because yeah. he 
Matt Reeves is such an interesting guy to me because he comes up with J.J. Abrams. They work on Mm. Felicity together. Um, J.J. writes Felicity. Matt Reeves directs Felicity. Um, They they did a lot of stuff early on together. Matt Reeves' first feature, like, blockbuster was Cloverfield, which was a J.J. Abrams joint that he came and directed. Um, But I think Reeves has always had amazing visual stylings and a lot of good story ideas. His remake of Let the Right One In, Let Me In is finally now people are realizing that it's really good and I'm glad because it's a really good movie. Um, it very much was in the like cycle of like foreign movies being remade and so I think people discounted it and they shouldn't have. It's a very special little movie. Um, and then his Apes movies obviously are some of the most yeah. kind of startling blockbusters of the 2000s, you know? Mm-hmm. Just like, these don't feel like anything else being made. And now he gets Batman and it... Here's how you know this is the first Batman movie made by actual Batman fans. Is how many times in the first 20 minutes they say the words, Year 2, second year. This is Year 2, Batman. Just to tell you, like, this is a Year 2 story, guys. It's going to be good. Um, Because as you've said on the podcast before, Sean, the two best versions of Batman are Year 2, when he's kind of established, but he's still a little unsure of himself. And then villains are all new. Or well-established Batman with the Bat family, top of the world, all of that stuff. Um, this is very much year two Batman to the point that he's got a journal that just says year two on it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the places I want to start here, because because obviously, you know, we have done our big Batman movie podcasts, right? Where we, yes. we did new podcasts of, of all the old Batman movies uh, through the Christopher Nolan ones. Um, eventually, I would still like to, to finish that out and do the the other ones that we didn't quite have time for with Red Hood and the the Bat Snyder movies, yeah, yeah. the Batfleck movies. Um, but we, we you know we got through and we have for the Batfleck movies we do have podcasts on them, just not the Zack Snyder version of Justice League. Um, and I would you know I mean I don't really want to rewatch Batman v Superman, but I think it would be interesting to re look at that movie because it's been long enough. Um, yeah. And I have a written review of Zack Snyder's Justice League. You can go read. It was on my top ten last year. You can read a lot of my thoughts on it. So yeah, but with like the classic Batman movies, like I, I do want to be specific when we're like we talk about like why does this feel like it is actual Batman and like how smart and effective it is at that. It's important to kind of look at like what is it that those old movies are missing about the character. And I think it is just like fundamentally there is a like there is a genre misalignment at play in almost every single Batman movie. Like, the only ones I think are, like, close are the Tim Burton ones. And it should be specific. We're talking about live action, right? Like, the animated movies are fucking great. They're their own thing. We're talking about, like, Hollywood live action movies. The Burton movies are, like, tonally close. They're, like, the the sets and all that stuff and the style of it is very, like, appropriate for the character. Like, those movies are the closest they've ever gotten. It's just, like, the central version of Batman the movies aren't particularly interested in. And so you don't really actually get the narrative genre. You just get all the aesthetic trappings of the genre of noir that is like part of like the fundamental thing with Batman. But specifically Batman, when you're looking at genre and why those other movies all fucked up, because they're basically either just like generic superhero action movies or they're basically James Bond spy movies that Christopher Nolan wanted to make, but he just got Batman instead. So he's like, well, fuck it. I'll just do, I'll just make a James Bond movie, slightly adjust it, and then put Batman characters in there. Um, which is what those movies generally feel like. Batman is a fantastical take on hard-boiled detective fiction. Like, that's what the character has always been. That is what, in most media, like in comic books, in cartoons, and in the video games, are all takeoffs of him being a fantastical, hard-boiled detective. 
Um, and it's something that's it's so frustrating that the live action movie versions just have never even really attempted it because like hard boiled detective fiction is like is such a classic Hollywood thing because that is like what film noir basically is at its root is broadly adaptations of hard boiled detective novels from like the thirties and forties. Right. Um, and I just think it's important to understand like the roots that Batman comes from in 1939 detective comics was a comic book version of what was then like such a booming genre of pulp magazines and pulp heroes where you have characters like Zorro and the shadow um, that are kind of pre comic book superheroes, but so inform and are from the same cultural moment of the great depression, these very cheap forms of broadly distributed public media that are very populist and consumer focused. And one of like the really popular subgenres of that was detective fiction and that's where you get you know the great authors of that genre of like raymond chandler and dashiell hammett all wrote short stories for these very cheaply sold anthology pulp magazines um that also would have characters like the shadow who is a detective character but it's more fantastical and he gets into more fist fights and stuff like that less of the kind of more grounded real detective-y feeling like private eye stuff that a dashiell hammett story like a maltese falcon or the big sleeps that kind of stuff is so that's where that all comes in. Comic books, eventually DC makes Batman in Detective Comics, who's just kind of a ripoff of a bunch of those characters in the comic book form. Um, and then you start having around that time in movies, you have adaptations of a bunch of that Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett stuff, which forms like a whole branch of what we call film noir. And then, so that's its own whole rich tradition. And that is what the character comes from. It's what he's about. The comic books more or less continue on that trend getting a little bit silly in the silver age because everything did with alien shit um <laughs> right. but the roots of the character are still effectively he is a detective character he is not from the batman comic he is from detective comics and he was one character in the anthology detective comics series that just got very popular and then i think what's interesting and this is where like the batman this movie particularly comes in is that in the 70s in cinema is where you get your neo-noir movement, right? That's where you get, like, the French Connection, Chinatown, Dirty Harry, which Dirty Harry in particular is more in that kind of slightly more fantastical version. That's more Batman-y. Um, but you have that, and you have this, like, really great resurgence of a lot of noir-style storytelling and narrative structure and, like, perspective, um, but with the more 70s Hollywood, like, realism, kind of more grounded take, and it's more violent. Um, and this is like also it, where we should say you have the movie brat generation where 70s yes. American directors are the first generation that would have gone to film school. Mm -hmm. And so they're working with film history very actively in their movies, your De Palmas and Coppolas and all the guys doing this stuff. Um, and Matt Reeves very much fits that profile too, I would say. And like, because yes. I was talking to some friends about this, the Batman, this movie feels like the first Batman movie made by a film school person because it mm -hmm. very much, it's like playing with so many things that like, we love to talk about in film school, like voyeurism and film history and all of this kind uh -huh. of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and you have this, like, incredible era of, of, of neo-noir movies from the 70s that then, like, re-injects itself back into the Batman DNA because around, like, the late 70s is where Batman starts getting, like, more like that stylistically. And this is all pre the Frank Miller stuff. Like, I think people slightly over-tribute Frank Miller for the course correction on Batman because it started before him with, like, Neil Adams. Um, but you you start having that. That's where like Jason Todd is, and then he gets killed. Like all that stuff starts happening in the late seventies, and then in the early eighties you have Batman Year One, 
which is your Frank Miller driven like reboot of Batman across a wide reboot of characters in the DC continuity called Crisis on Infinite Earths happens and then they do sort of reboot those characters do new versions of the origin stories that are more updated and basically what Frank Miller and DC did with Batman Year One is well if original Batman was film noir era like you know pulp detective the shadow that kind of stuff updated version of Batman is those same things but neo-noir style so it's that same concept pulp like gravelly detective he narrates to himself um it's all of like the narrative trappings and plot stylings of a noir thing but in this more 70s era kind of grounded more realistic take on the character which has then become like the dominant form of Batman across most Batman media at least like references the style of Batman year one even if it doesn't actually replicate any of like the actual plotting and things like that in the core narrative stuff which like you know batman begins looks like batman year one or is inspired by it but doesn't actually have any of the plot type stuff that that really has um and so then you have that with like the 70s stuff with batman and the thing with like the batman this movie is that it is like the first one that says okay well batman is a hardball detective character that is what he is that is what his stories are that's what the plots are that is what the character is designed for and is in his best media always has been we in movies have like this incredibly rich brilliant historical genre that has multiple different phases because then you also have like almost like neo neo noir of the 2000s and like late 90s and stuff with like seven and stuff like that coming in um, or uh, a Zodiac, which is a clear influence on this movie. It's like there's like this rich vein of noir in neo-noir movies. Let's just make one of those and make Batman the main character of it. And it's <laughs> yes. like, that's what this movie does. And that's it. And it's like, none of the other Batman movies have ever done it. And it's the thing that's fucking insane when you see it done on screen is how like, Obviously, it's not easy to make a movie, but conceptually, it's the most straightforward thing you could possibly do with the character is, let's just take a neo-noir story and make Batman the main character. And that's what this whole movie is. And it's fucking great because they finally just actually made a Batman story. Yes. No, that's 100%. I mean, I knew we were in good hands when... Actually, I knew we were in good hands from the fucking logos, which just uh -huh. do WB, DC, title of the movie, get started. It does yeah. not have the like 45 minute fucking DC logo or like the fucking long Marvel logo we get on everything now. It's just like old style credits. We do WB, DC, the Batman, here's your movie. Thank you. Um, but you have first scene, Riddler does his crime. Second scene is your little hero introduction to Batman. Phenomenal. We'll talk about that in a second. And then it is Batman at the crime scene, going through, looking at clues, talking about stuff. And then the scene after that is he follows up on a lead from the, the scene he got before. And then after that, he follows up on another lead. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, we're not cutting to a B-plot. We're not cutting to, like, five other characters who have their own stuff going on here. We're not doing, like, seven different scenes with the villain establishing them. This is just... Like we're barely getting Batman out of the cowl. This is just Batman going around doing Batman stuff, which to me and most Batman fans is detective stuff. And that's the whole movie. And it's fucking great. Yeah. I mean, it's like you could take this script and like you could like heavily modify it. Obviously, you'd have to modify it to remove like all the Batman specific elements. But if you took all the Batman specific stuff out and made it like more generic characters, 
this could be just like fucking Jake from Chinatown or whoever, you know? Like, it could be any neo-noir style detective character, right? It could be your pair, like, with Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, and Seven could be investigating this. It could be fucking anybody because it's, the core thing is that noir style plotting of you have your hero gets introduced to mystery at the beginning of the story and he gets handed some clues he follows those clues to a couple of like key suspects and key locations where he gets some half right information that he then is follows around follows some other leads learns something revelatory about both himself and like the world at large that there is like much more happening underneath the surface this isn't just one crime it is something that exposes a deep like rotten systemic corruption to the whole thing um and that usually reflects in some significant way on either the main character or someone very close to him like the femme fatale archetype which would be like a cat cat woman in this movie takes that information goes back to the same places and characters he saw before but now like more enlightened and goes through that cycle again and then ultimately has to sort of directly confront whatever like the fundamental corruption is and not even really particularly succeed at defeating it and come out of it like weary, battered, but wiser at the end, right? That is like the whole noir genre styling and structure and plotting. Um, you know, we saw it in Mask of the Phantasm, if you want it in Batman and something else. Um, it is just like, it's such a fundamentally tight plot driven style cinematic plot, um, that it's so gratifying to just see it happen, but now it's Batman doing it. And it's like, I, you know, I just love those kinds of movies so much anyways. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I like Batman comics is because when Batman comics are good, they can do that extremely well. And it's just like, I, it's just so nice to see a Batman movie actually do it. And it's that thing where it feels dumb almost to be like so complimentary of it because it's like it seems like that basic part of it of of taking the plot arc of a noir movie and putting it with batman is so straightforward but nobody's done it before on live action film and so like actually seeing it done is great but then this movie doesn't just do it it does it fantastically oh totally and you know the thing is though watching it i could kind of see why this is a lift though for hollywood because uh -huh. This does, like, resolutely does not feel like any other comic book movie that's uh -huh. been made. Or, or at least big, like, budget superhero movie. You know, this is, a, this is WB's big release for the year, right? Yeah. It, um, the current weekend estimate is $130 million for box office. It's everyone seeing it. It's a big movie. But it's this long, slow, like, this is a slow movie. And I love that. I like, like, intentionally slow movies can be fucking great. And this is a slow movie that like you know again when I know we're in good hands is when that first scene where he's investigating is just a lot of Batman walking slowly with the sound of his boots high in the mix and Michael Giacchino having these long like you know chords in the music just to sense that that sense of elongation and him studying the scene and we're just kind of in the atmosphere it's a lot of that it's not an action movie this yeah. just is not an action movie it's got one big sequence you could call an action sequence which is the car chase and then there's some stuff at the end that is action-oriented, but is even then is a little different than what you would normally get for the climax of a superhero movie. Um, and every other Batman movie has been an action movie, to some degree. Yeah. You know, most superhero movies are fundamentally action movies. Um, that's not what this movie is. Yeah. And so, like, you know, this movie only gets made 
if they've done Batman so many times, they need to do something different. And if you have a filmmaker like Matt Reeves, who has built up enough goodwill coming up in the industry and gotten enough money for the people making the movie that they will let him basically do whatever he wants, you know? And yeah. that's what we got here. And it's really cool to watch. This is, as comic book movies go, relatively uncompromised. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this is something that's true of his Planet of the Apes movies as well. Like, the movie is so confident, right? Like, yeah. it just, it, it has such a clear vision of what it wants to be. It's take on the characters, it's plot, like, it's world, the characters that live in it. All that stuff is so extremely confident um, that there's just this incredibly firm hand on the wheel, I feel like, at all times with the movie. Um, which is something you particularly need with a movie like this that has that slow burn style plotting to it. Um, that you need this like kind of confidence that like all this like setup is like important and it's going to be paid off and it's all like organically built throughout the entire thing um and i think you particularly feel that in that of the scene batman walking around the room and like just being able to sit with it for as long as you do like not even just comic book movies most hollywood movies would not be comfortable with how long that scene is right they would want that scene to be as short as possible and batman to go punch someone in the face you know as quickly as possible to kind of get a earlier action scene into the movie um but this movie is happy with let's like sit here let's be here let's sit with the characters let's see all the information let's soak up the tone um let's like look at batman look at people looking at batman and how, how much it just tells you about everything about the world and the people in it um by yes. living in that moment rather than cutting to something else that's more exciting well, you know, I was reading about this today. Apparently they did test a shorter version of the movie and it tested more poorly than the longer version. And I 100% believe yeah. that because the only way, I, I we'll talk about the ending. I, I, I like the last couple scenes, but I think there's a moment you could end it that would be stronger about like seven minutes earlier. But other than that, there's no scenes in this movie you can cut. There's no like... Every scene builds on the scene yeah. before it. The only way you could make this movie shorter is to make the scenes, like, compress them, which you could do, but I think it would actually have the opposite effect of making the movie feel longer because it would feel, like, weirdly ragged and incomplete and, like, jumping around more. Um, whereas this movie is just so on top of itself the whole time that you're just in it, you know? Um, and that's a really, really crucial thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 the the tone of it is so thick and so yeah. compelling. Um, and and it's the thing you need with noir, right? Like you yes. need you need to sit there in the atmosphere because I think one thing that's important to distinguish, like film noir style detective stuff, or like the hard boiled detective stuff, and it's very different than like an Agatha Christie whodunit or something. Is that the point of a noir style detective story is not who is the villain. It's like it's about the characters uncovering like the roots of corruption and like being exposed to the reality and the dark and dark reality of the world that they live in. That even if they seemed wizened and world weary at the beginning of the story, like they were actually exposed to even be naive at that point because everything is even worse than they thought it was. Um, and coming confronting that face to face and like the deliberateness with which that all of that has to be like scraped out and ripped off for you to see like the nasty beating core underneath the corruption and awfulness of whatever like crime or tragedy that is being investigated and how deep its roots go that's the hard-boiled detective thing that's the film noir thing that's why like 
film noir always has to have like a very kind of conflicted feeling ending because there's no way to actually rip out the heart of that corruption. You can only expose it and then do your best to sort of fight against it, but you never directly prevail, which is very different than a whodunit, which is just about the process of collecting, not just, but it's like, it's primarily the process of collecting clues and evidence, creating a mystery and a puzzle for the audience to try to solve. And then for the detective to be very impressive in putting all those pieces together in an interesting way and solving it and catching the killer. And then, you know, wash your hands of it. It's like, we caught the bad guy and we go home. And both of the genres are great on their own, but they're like different things. Um, and so that's like, specifically, that's what this is, is it's not about Batman cleverly figuring out who the Riddler really is. That's not the point of the movie at all. It doesn't give a shit really about that. It's about him confronting the reality of the world that he's living in through his detective process of peeling back all the different layers that, that the corruption is hidden underneath. And it's also very good at mixing all of that with the more heightened comic book reality uh -huh. that is what makes Batman fun. Yeah. So, you know, this movie is not ashamed of the villain being called the Riddler. It is not the Penguin. It's just the Penguin. Everyone knows this dude as the Penguin. He goes around and goes, what are you talking about, sweetheart? Like that kind of stuff. You know, it's like, it's, it's silly in those ways. It literally, the big visual metaphor of the end of the movie is a flood washing away what yeah. Gotham has been. You know, like it's big in that way that Batman is allowed to be because he is he is a hard-boiled detective in a heightened comic book world. Which leads me to one conversation I want to have right off the bat, which is the stupidity of what I'm seeing online and in reviews of like, ah, another dark, gritty Batman movie. <laughs> this is so different than... It, it's more in line with what Burton did, but yeah. like Burton's thing is very different in part because like I agree with exactly what you said earlier, Sean. Burton's movies 100% nail the look of what this should be, and then the plots do nothing with that. Yeah. And that's what's kind of... Batman Returns is its own weird thing, but Batman 89 is very disappointing on that level. But like comparing this to the Chris Nolan movies is such a stupid thing, because I think they're... Like, is The Batman a dark movie? Yes, visually and otherwise, because that's the kind of tradition it's pulling from. But it's much more like to me kind of like audience friendly and lighter than like the, mm -hmm. the fucking Chris Nolan movies which are dark in what I would call a very self-serious way like they are under the impression that they are making serious points about the real world in a setting that is the real world like their big conceit is what if Batman was just in actual Chicago today and a lot of what I find offensive about those movies is its treatment of reality and its own self-seriousness this movie has a lot to say about the, the world. It actually feels like a very current version of Batman in a lot of what they do. But it is, I would not call this a very self-serious movie. I think it's very winking in a lot of what it's doing, which is part of the fun of neo-noir when you do it right. Yeah, that it's, it's, it is heightened and it's got, you know, it has both the kind of like sociological bent to it a bit, like looking at corruption in society, but it also is very psychological right it's it's very concerned and interested with the interiority of batman slash bruce wayne and his experiences and his character arc um which is you know which is always true of noir type stuff it's like where the narration comes from right is like you're in the head of the person who is the detective which is you know very different than like a whodunit type thing where typically you're in some sort of audience perspective character obviously the famous one being dr watson um, but with this, you're like, you are with the detective as they're peeling all this out and you're getting their raw thoughts and feelings and emotions presented to you either on the page or in a movie through narration often, um, that is communicating their psychological state and often 
the world itself feels distorted by the nature of their psychological state. And so in like movies, usually like stylistically, the movie becomes more and more extreme as it goes on visually and the way it's edited and the way it's shot and the sets and stuff like that can like almost transform. Like Seven is a good example of that. If it getting like very heightened in certain sequences and very almost theatrical with like how more oppressed and like intense the psychological state of the detectives become or for that, like specifically the Brad Pitt character, like that is very much where this movie is and it's so it's got this heightened theatrical dramatic quality to it that is what you want from noir and it's as basically as far away from the very cold purely sociological detached feeling tone of the christopher nolan stuff because this has like a beating heart to it it has a humanity to it it's concerned about the main character and what he's feeling and what he's experiencing and the rest of the people in the city um, and with that just comes this richer tonality. It, with it comes, like, a lot of humor. Because I think this movie is super funny. Um, I think particularly their take on Gordon is so good. Um, and, like, yes. some, like Jeffrey Wright just has the perfect line deliveries that are both, like, dramatically satisfying, but also very funny in their, like, movie cop way. Of it just saying, it's like, wait, so are you telling me that Falcone's the rat? Right? Like, he gets all this, like, big cop dialogue <laughs> that's very fun and almost, like, a bit wink-wink the camera and you know the riddler has full-on actual riddles and stuff like that and he just calls himself the riddler there's this like heightened humor to the whole world that is very batman right like the animated series is also a very funny show often because of how like heightened and ridiculous and the joker is funny and like all that kind of stuff can exist while also having the darker psychological storytelling as well because those two things go hand in hand the humor and the dark psychological storytelling whereas the like detached weird like i'm going to look at my like city and all like the pawns in it kind of thing that feels like nolan is as a director looking at the world of his film humor can't really exist in that framework almost at all sexuality can't either yes. this movie is hot in several scenes yes. when you've got zoe kravitz and robert pattinson in their crazy costumes looking at each other and matt reeves just slows the movie down for a minute to let you feel hey these two really want to fuck each other like yes. that cannot exist in a chris nolan movie it's impossible they're all barbie and ken dolls you know mm -hmm. um this movie is not as horny as batman returns because that's impossible no movie is as horny as batman returns but it's you know compared to all other like 2000s era superhero movies it's very horny yeah it, it's it's yeah, it, it's like it's sexy, right? In that way, like it's intentionally sexy. Like they they yeah. understand that like Robert Pattinson is hot and trashy, and they like lean into <laughs> it, right? And with like the makeup well, and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you talk about how you know in this kind of movie the style gets more heightened as you go along, and I was thinking of the scene in this movie where after he starts to learn about his parents, he, like, shoves the table aside and is using, like, spray paint to make this crazy fucking, you know, mystery conspiracy board in the least, like, convenient way for him to do that. It's a very stupid way to make a conspiracy board, but what you get is shirtless Robert Pattinson doing this tortured thing, and it's very... It, like, works stylistically so well. And then the following scene is him going and talking to Falcone, where his fucking hair is, like, inhumanly wet over his yeah. face. And he looks like Cesare, the somnambulist from Dr. Caligari, with, uh -huh. like, this, like, white face and all of this stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, these guys got the fucking assignment, and this is great. Yes, yeah, that, it, that they lean into it really hard stylistically, which is what you want. And that's all the stuff that, like, 
you know, we talked about with the Christopher Nolan movies, that one of the things that makes it feel distinctly un-Batman compared to earlier Batman live-action movies was that, like, nothing of, like, the gothic trappings of Batman are there. Um, like, gothic meaning not, like, literally Gotham the city, although that's where the name comes from, but gothic in the, you know, the, the liter literature style and aesthetic from the 19th century. Um, and this has that in spades. It's gothic as fuck. It's not just gothic. It's goth, right? You've got yes. Robert Pattinson with, like, as you say, like, sometimes his hair is, like, clearly dyed black. Like, it's, a, like, darker than, than it is in other scenes to, like, lean into the aesthetic. And he's got the fucking black eye paint that is the eye paint that all Batman actors have worn to wear the Batman cowl. But this is, like... He is where he has it on in scenes with him out without the cowl on because it's part of the whole, like not just gothic but literal goth aesthetic that the movie's going for, um, and I so appreciate that because you need the neon lights and the weird towers and yes. like I mean it, you know he doesn't live in a weird gothic mansion like outside of the city he lives in a like weird gothic penthouse at the top of the city which is in some ways even better like I love that. Um, as like a little like a more modern take on the like Wayne Manor or whatever, um, but but they retain the gothic aesthetic of it because you know giant pointy spires is literally in an architecture sense what gothic is, um, and his whole weird fucking penthouse is just full of weird yeah. shit um, that is is it's as far away from utilitarian as you can get, which is what some of the like the set dressing in so much of the Nolan movies they like they really wanted to get to in like the dark night a white stark room for all the batman shit to be in because nothing screams batman more than let's stand in a room with white floors white walls and white ceilings and one computer with alfred at it in the middle like you are in the in dark night like let's get rid of all the cool caves and the mansions and all the gothic <laughs> shit and let's go to a blank giant white space for batman to be in is like the fucking stupidest piece of set dressing in the history of movies and this movie's like as far away from that as you could be. Well, and one of the things I love about this movie, and I praised it with the Burton films too, this is a studio backlot movie. This uh -huh. is a, and by that I mean it is all shot on sound stages and studio backlots. There's a couple of location shots. I don't think there are any actual full location scenes in this movie. Um, and that is a good thing for Batman because Batman is pulling on a legacy of movies that are studio backlot movies. Yeah. That's what noir is. That's what most neo-noir is. Is mm -hmm. like you have to construct it because it doesn't actually exist in the world. And while all of the like cityscape stuff in Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises can result in very pretty cinematography and stuff like that, it's very uninteresting as a setting for Batman yeah. because none of, none of, literally none of the mise-en-scene in Dark Knight or Dark Knight Rises reflects Batman as a character or his psyche because it's just Chicago and it's just Pittsburgh and Batman doesn't live in Chicago or Pittsburgh. He lives in Gotham and yeah. Gotham is a crazy gothic like hellscape. Burton did this particularly well, which led to the animated series doing it particularly well, and I think they've done a great job reinventing it for this film in both production design and crucially cinematography, which is mm -hmm. Jesus Christ yes. good in this movie. Um and it gets all of that, so you don't have Batman walking around actual Chicago. You have him on cool sets that look cool cuz they are fake as shit and that's what mm -hmm. you want, god damn it, right? Yes, it's all it's all very stylized, which is so which is appropriate for the character because yes. of course it is a man dressed in a giant bat suit going around and beating yes. people up and solving <laughs> serial killer crimes by a dude who calls himself the Riddler. And it is, I think, like the moment I most knew 
we were in good hands was he kind of like alluded to this earlier but that like as soon as the riddler comes on like the first thing the character says in his like recorded message or whatever is like i'm the riddler i was like yes Oh, thank God. It's like you don't have to yes. be, like, him avoiding it. And then, like, you have to create an entire scene where some random Gotham City cop is like, oh, are we going to chase down the Riddle Man today? And, like, they have to, like, go through some weird, like, process by which, like, a news broadcast in the back of yes. the screen is like, some strange serial killer using riddles has been called by some members of the populace the Riddler. Uh, and that's, like, the only time the character's name is said in the entire movie. Um, he just says, I'm the Riddler. Everyone calls him the Riddler. He leaves ridiculous riddles around for people all over the place. You have <laughs> scenes that, like, if you just dialed it up, like, two notches could just be a scene from one of the Adam West Batman movies of them trying yes, to, of course. to break down what the riddle is and that the fact that he, it was L instead of La and Spanish and all that. Like, it's so ridiculous and it's very funny and it's very stylized and it works 100% for what the movie is doing because it's a fucking Batman movie. Same with the Penguin. They yes. identify him as, like, literally Batman shows Commissioner Gordon a picture and Gordon says, that's the Penguin. And I'm just like... I love this movie. Yes. I fucking love this movie. It's the Penguin, and he talks in a ridiculous way, and he looks... It's not as silly as the Danny DeVito stuff, but, like, my brother made a funny comment the other day. He said he he said he loved Colin Farrell as the Penguin, but low-key kind of thought it would be funny if they had just put Danny DeVito in it again. Uh -huh. And the thing is, they could have pulled... You could have yes. done that. That's what's so great. One of the things I love about this movie, and why I'm excited for future movies like this... I can imagine most of the Batman rogues gallery in this world. Yes. There is no other live-action Batman I can say that about. Like, I could 100% imagine a Batman 2 where Robert Pattinson's Batman goes up against the Mr. Freeze from the animated series. Uh-huh. Like, that yes. version of Freeze. I can imagine the Mad Hatter from the games being in this and it being actually really compelling. You know, I can imagine fucking Calendar Man. There are like yes. actual Batman villains that they've never done that you could do in this world. And they've adjusted it. Like they don't have Riddler in like, you know, a comical green leotard because that wouldn't really work. But it is still the Riddler. And that's what's so fun about it, you know? Yes. Yeah, 100%. And, and the only place where they don't do this, and I'm, I'm mostly, I'm fine with it because I find it even funnier, is I love to death that Gordon doesn't call Batman Batman because it feels like he's embarrassed to. So he calls him yes. man in chief. And I love yep. it so much. Like he, cause he doesn't know the guy's name and it's like, and he's like some middle-aged cop. He doesn't want to go around and say, it's like, so Batman, what do you think of this? Um, and I love that. He's just like, come over here, chief, take a look at this. Uh, it's, the funniest shit in the world um and it's like like low-key this is my favorite version of gordon like i love gary oldman in the christopher nolan movies and he does a great job but like the character they have written here is so much fun and i think jeffrey wright yes. just like pops so much as like old school hollywood movie cop man which is just what gordon is and like leaning into that role entirely um, and him just, this guy's just like, what do you think of this, man? Come on. It's like, come on, man, get over here. It's the fucking best shit in the world. Oh, this is easily the best movie version of Gordon because, uh, like, for a million reasons, one of them being Jeffrey Wright is just legitimately my favorite actor who's done the part. Mm -hmm. And I, I could watch Jeffrey Wright do literally anything and yeah. I would find it interesting. He is one of my favorite actors. Um, but, like, on top of that, I think their conceptualization of him, 
I I love that he's an actual partner for Batman. That mm-hmm. is something most of the movies miss. Uh, the Nolan movies do a relatively good version of Gordon, but one of the things they miss is like Gordon is never really on Batman's intellectual like level. And, you know, here, Gordon isn't necessarily the one always solving the riddles, frankly, because he's beleaguered and has other stuff to do, and so he leaves that to the crazy dude in the bat suit. But, like, you get a sense through the whole movie that when Batman and Gordon are on screen, Batman respects this guy. Yes. Batman's with him for a reason. They have a friendly chemistry. If it were a slightly different world, they might go out and have beers together. Like, and that is what I've always loved about Gordon in like the animated series or the video games do this pretty well. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's an easy dynamic to do with Gordon, and they really, really get it here. So you get a fully fleshed out character and a fully fleshed out relationship between him and Batman. Yeah, like I I love he has a comment at a certain point in the movie where he says it's like we've known each other for two years and I don't even know your name and there's like this feeling of like that Gordon wants to be like he's like also like pushing the boundaries like come on man like, like let's have a beer together like let's be friends not just colleagues like it's like he's trying to like push that relationship to the next level um, but unfortunately it's he's like trying to do that with like a twenty year old. Uh, you know, fucking insane somnambulist, basically. Fucking the dude, you know, Batman doesn't sleep at all in this movie, and Robert Pattinson's performance, like, reflects that. It's a very intentional choice. It's like, you know, Gordon's not going to get the reciprocation from that relationship, but I love that he's, like, kind of pushing at it. Because, I mean, it, it it is, like, a whole kind of buddy cop dynamic, basically, they have going on between Batman and Gordon in this very, like, kind of twisted, weird Batman way. Um, and it's just the most fun, interesting version of that character we've gotten in any of the movies. Uh, and it's it's one of the best parts. I just every scene that he and Batman are together and their dialogue with each other is so funny. It, it, but like, and not funny in like, oh, this is ridiculous. It's just funny in a, this is such a lived in performance in two like real yes. people. And it's funny in the way that of like actual people who are very different, but like respect each other, bouncing off of each other in a way that is like r- funny in real life. I'm thinking of like the moment when the bat signal goes up because Catwoman has done it, but they both arrive at the same yes. time and they're like, I thought you put it on. You didn't put it on? And they're like, okay, what's going on here? Oh God, and their it's... relationship is so good. Yeah, like that is one of the best moments of them both pulling up and being like, I thought you, you didn't? No, it's like, you didn't? Oh, that's weird. And it's not because like either character is ever making jokes. This isn't a Marvel movie where like no. someone has come in and like done the joke pass on the script. Yeah, there are no and quips. it's very awkward. Yeah, but it's funny because it's lived in, is, is as you were saying, right? Yeah. Um, and this is heightened and weird. Yeah, because the way so, that scene is written is like Batman and Gordon ran each other at the fucking grocery store. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes. Like they neither of them really expected to see each other right there. Like, oh wow, I didn't. Wow. Okay. Cool. It's, cool. See you here, man. Okay, so Jeffrey Wright, we love him. Let's talk about some of the other performances. Robert Pattinson, we were both very excited. We thought it was perfect casting. Turns out, yes, perfect casting. He is easily the best live-action Batman. If you're arguing for anyone else, you're an idiot. I I will accept your love for Michael Keaton, because Michael Keaton deserves all the love in the world. But Michael Keaton didn't get to play as fully formed a character as this. Robert Pattinson in this movie is A-plus, perfect, mwah, I love it. Yes, it is. It is a great performance that the movie cares about. You know, like it's yes. the, it's the main difference with like the Michael Keaton stuff. Is like Michael Keaton is fucking great in Batman and Batman Returns. And if they had made a movie that was about that character, I think he could have turned in like an absolutely legendary performance, like as good as any of like the classic superhero movie performances. But he just didn't get really the opportunity with the material. Um, but like this is both Robert Pattinson, who is an incredibly talented actor. 
um, pulling in a great performance. You know, he's not like slumming it on a superhero movie. He really clearly cares about the material, cares about the character, is enthusiastic and passionate about doing it. Um, and then a movie giving him really, really great material um, with a full character arc and lots of great, interesting scenes um, and just a very thorough, like, lived-in take in the character. And it's like the thing that I think Robert Pattinson most brings to the role is just like, I think you fully believe that this person exists, right? Like, you you, yes. you believe him, you believe his psychology, you understand why he is doing the things he's doing, why he is driven to be Batman, but you also understand critically that, like, it's all kind of fucked up and wrong, that he shouldn't be doing this, that he's killing himself, that he's not helping the city, really. Um, he's, he's destroying himself, spending all his energy in the wrong direction, which is what the movie is about and what his character arc is. And I think that's fantastic. And then his portrayal brings all of that to life. And it brings this really rich character arc for an early Batman um, to life with just this fully lived in, believable performance. Totally. And, you know, I think there was a lot of talk at when he took this part because Pattinson took a very sharp left turn after Twilight. Mm -hmm. uh, Kristen Stewart did the same thing of let's go the indie route and find every interesting director I can work with and just do weird, you know, he did like two David Cronenberg movies, all this kind of weird stuff. He's been in a Claire Denis movie. He's done all this great stuff. Safdie brothers, all sorts of interesting films and it's like, is Batman kind of like, the, you know, what's what's coming back to Hollywood like this? You know, what's he doing it for? And the thing is, I think it like slots into the arc of his career very logically because mm -hmm. this is a higher profile movie of which he's taking a bigger paycheck home. But it feels like the kind of stuff he's interested in, which is yeah. this is an interesting character who's weird and like iconographic. I think Pattinson is someone who as an actor has an has a good sense of his own like body and iconography and filmmakers often use him for that purpose um like david cronenberg very much did um and i think this movie you know does that a lot and you can feel the enthusiasm for it and it is heightened to the point of silliness which is what batman is you know um and because this is a this is the first batman movie that is willing to call batman on his bullshit which is what all good batman stories do because batman is a fucking weirdo he gets to play a really great, interesting version of the character who grows and changes and has, you know, dynamic character moments. It's it's fantastic. And this I just love. He looks more like a vampire in this movie yeah. than he ever did in Twilight. He's yeah. more afraid of the sunlight in this movie. There's a scene where the sun is out and he puts on sunglasses because he's so, like, he's so unused to the light that he can't be in it. That doesn't happen in Twilight. He just sparkles. I fucking love that he's more of a vampire in this than in the five vampire movies he did. Yeah, I love this take on a young Bruce Wayne who is so... And this It's not like this is original, but it's something we've never really seen the movies do uh, because the closest they got was a little bit with Christian Bale, but then they abandoned it completely because he's like... Christian Bale's so suave and charming. Um, but, you know, most Batman movies, we just get the very straightforward, like, he is very good at pretending to be this, like, uh, playboy billionaire character to sort of throw people off the scent of him being Batman and to get some clue or something by attending some gala affair. Um, and that's like a plot point in basically every single Hollywood Batman movie. He goes to some sort of like weird basketball or party or some shit. And then something goes down <laughs> with the villain being there to just get a Bruce Wayne scene in there. 
Um, and, and, you know, and that's a totally legitimate thing, right? That's like the roots of the character. The shadow is like literally that exact same thing. Zoro is literally that exact same thing. Um, so it's like, it's, it's fair enough to have that, but I like the, I, the younger Bruce Wayne who is nowhere near like elegant or like graceful enough to be able to do this, to like actually be a normal person is something he doesn't know how to be yet. I believe that eventually in like 10 years, this Bruce Wayne would eventually learn how to play both sides of this equation very effectively, like the Batman you see in Batman the Animated Series, which is, you know, the best version of Take On That, where you get, I think, the full richness of both sides of it and how the, like, the space in between the two kind of personas he lives. Um, but here, he does not know what being Bruce Wayne is, and he just doesn't care. Um, and he's just dead he's just this totally dead fucking person who never sleeps it's like you know he he can't sleep he has nightmares when he tries to most times he goes out he's i mean most nights he just goes out as batman he completes keeps like a little like journal to both remember all the things he's done because he can't remember it all because he is fucking sleep deprivation and like almost as like a dream journal or some shit to like try to process what's happening to him um, and I think that that's such a great take on the character and that Robert, I feel like it's like one of the core things that Robert Pattinson's performance runs with is this idea that he's kind of not all there. He's out of it, particularly when he's not in the Batman suit and he's doing Batman shit. He's just like sort of lost. Um, and anytime he's in normal Bruce Wayne stuff and when he like wears normal person clothes for the first time, not the like baggy black t-shirt and pants, <laughs> which is what he wears the first time you see him, which is the most goth shit ever. Um, yes. But he like wears a suit when he goes to that uh, memorial service or whatever. And it's just like, Oh God, you look like you're going to fucking die any second with how pale and just exhausted and frail he looks and how uncomfortable he looks as Bruce Wayne, because it's just he doesn't know how to be a normal person because he's invested himself so much in his own trauma that he can't be a human being anymore. And I think that that's such a like really rich, compelling take on the character for a young version of Bruce Wayne. And like, that's the kind of thing that I think any like other performer would not really be able to do to this caliber. Um, it's the thing that I think like, it feels like the thing that Robert Pattinson most sunk his teeth into um, that. I've just never seen another live action Batman do anything close to something like that. I love the little moment before the memorial where, I mean, one, the costuming and makeup in this movie is so fucking good yes. at telling a story. Like, that suit doesn't fit him anymore. He's, uh -huh. like, emaciated. It's It doesn't look good on him. And then also he doesn't have cufflinks because he, he's like, I couldn't find them. And it's like, because he probably doesn't know where anything is anymore, right? Because yeah. he's so checked out. And so Alfred gives him his cufflinks. And that's a really nice little moment, but it's also, like... He is so sleepwalking through the world. Alfred knows, like, this is not a good idea for you to go out to this memorial. And, of uh -huh. course, he's bumbling around and barely knows how to talk to anyone, you know? He has like he gets, like, one good line in on Falcone there. But you also sort of see this mirror of, like, Falcone, John Turturro, is really good at the opposite of that, of being, like, this, like, slick gangster out in public with his public face. And Bruce Wayne just hasn't mastered that at all, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's such a fun performance. And then... Yeah, all the... I mean, we knew this from the trailers and stuff, but I fucking love the... the Every Batman has had the eyeshadow on, but it is magic eyeshadow that always disappears when they take the cowl off in every movie. Like, literally, in Batman Returns, there's the scene he rips it off in front of Catwoman at the end, and the eyeshadow's there when the cowl is on, and when he rips it off, it's gone, because they never want to have the bat... Like, sexy Bruce Wayne with big eye... You know, mascara all over yeah. his eyes. 
Nope. Robert Pattinson's got that mascara on in every fucking scene other than the memorial service. And it is there all over the place. His hair is always messy. He's pale as shit. He just looks like a mess. He's goth. We're listening to Nirvana in the movie. It's great. I fucking love the mood of the whole thing around the character. Yeah, it's it's very it's just that kind of very complete take on the character, which is very gratifying. And then you have the other half of it, which is the Batman half, and this yes. is where we get what is easily far and away the best live action Batman costume ever. Like yes. it's oh, it's easily both in terms of just its visual presence on screen, and then also it's like you know we did get this with Batfleck also, but you know it's good to have this with like a good movie. Um, which is the him being mobile, you know? He can yes. turn his head, he can, like, jump around, he can punch people and kick people and do cool martial arts stuff. Um, he can be Batman, and he's not, like, big, stompy, weird man who has to rotate his entire body to look two degrees to the left and then <laughs> rotate his entire body to look two degrees to the right to see if there's, like, a dog that's gonna fucking bite his ankle or some shit. You know, like, it's, it's this full, like physical performance that Pattinson's able to give while in the costume that almost again with the exception of Batfleck like no other live action Batman Batfleck and, and Adam West in a very different way no other live action Batman has ever been able to give an actual like physical performance as Batman because it's just been stand here um wearing this costume and do some very light choreography that is about the best you can manage wearing this ridiculous cumbersome suit um and so well yeah well, because in The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, I actually think the mobility is there in the suit, but Nolan is so inept as a director sure, of yeah. action that you just never get it. And the suit that they redesigned so he can move his neck and everything, it's just generic military mm -hmm. armor with little, like, horns on the top. He does not look like Batman in Dark Knight or Dark Knight Rises at all. This yeah. is an actual, like, looks like it's out of a comic book Batman suit, but he can move and give a full performance in it. The cowl in this movie mm -hmm. looks so fucking good. Yeah. And Robert Pattinson has the most perfect chin line for it. Yes. It's just, it's amazing. He just, he gets to be Batman. And I can't believe it took this many movies, but we fucking got it. Thank Christ. Yeah, it's just he, his performance as Batman is perfect. He doesn't do a big voice, right? He, he talks a <laughs> little bit more raspy. Um, but like slightly, you know, um, then, then, you know, when he's like trying to vaguely talk to John Turturro and wearing a suit, he's not trying to be very intimidating, but other than that, like, it's just him talking, right? Um, and it's a thing where it, it, you know, it reflects even more poorly on all those choices of the Christopher Nolan movies. Would you just see this? Like, you didn't have to do any of that shit. Like, you don't have to make him big and clunky and stompy you don't have to make him growl at people like you can just do the thing that like all other batman media has done forever which is make him like a ninja man and have him talk to people and it's fine you know like i i i, I always will be sad that we never could get any sort of like uh christian bale batman across a superman character that he's trying to have a conversation with and like him trying yes. to be world's finest buds with superman while growling at him the entire time it's like you couldn't imagine it this version of batman as you say i can imagine him with any other character from the dc comics universe because it's just batman and he just can talk to people and he's just that character he's not some like absurd caricature that can't exist outside of like the barest frames of the shot you've shot with him 
Yes, exactly. And I think the mobility is key because when he jumps into action, and there are so, so many good shots, like this movie more than any other Batman movie has a real feeling for Batman's iconography as a Mm -hmm. character and has fun with that. But like, I'm thinking in particular, I think my favorite moment of this might be at the end when he comes in through the roof of Gotham Square Garden and just... He's jumping around like an actual ninja on these guys, mm-hmm. using his gadgets, moving very fast, very like you know particular in the strikes he's making. He's not like all elbows like in the Nolan movies or something stupid. It's just it's like yeah, this feels like a comic book version of Batman in a movie theater, and it's so cool, um, and it's so much fun. And yeah, and as you said, because of the voice and the costume and everything, he gets to give a full performance. And that's important because he's in the cowl way more yes. than he's out of it in this movie. Um, which, you know, I think is would have been unthinkable for, like, certain past versions of Batman. Like, you couldn't have done that in the Tim Burton movies because he can barely move in that thing, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, but it's that thing where it's like it's so it's one of the many elements that makes this feel like a proper Batman movie because to be like perfectly honest, in most other Batman media, like the comic books and the cartoons and stuff, he's not Bruce Wayne very much. Like the most right. he's Bruce Wayne is when he's in the Batcave at the computer talking to Alfred. Other than that, like you will occasionally get the scene of him at some sort of like you know big dinner party for some rich fucker where like man bat attacks or something you know but usually he's just batman doing batman stuff and when he's not in the batman costume he's just he's like lifted the cowl up off of his head while he's sitting at the computer with like a cup of hot coffee trying to figure out like what riddle's been set for him or whatever um and that's very much the style this movie goes for is that most of the time in the movie He's 100% in Batman mode, and that's really kind of, like, both what you want and what the character, I think, is most built for in most of his stories. Well, it's it's another reason why Pattinson is a uniquely good actor for this, because what that means is that a lot of this movie is watching Batman watch other people and think. Mm -hmm. It's watching him think through problems, oftentimes non-verbally, and you have to have an actor who has an interesting enough approach to small minute details of movement of where his eye line is all of that kind of stuff and i think pattinson 100 percent delivers it's a very nuanced performance going yeah. on under this crazy you know superhero costume and he's just very compelling to watch him watch other people you know yeah that's that's what you need for batman that's what you need for any noir like protagonist because that's like what they do most of the time you know um that's like because you know because with like noir stuff it doesn't even have to be detective like one of the best noir movies ever made is fucking citizen kane you know there's no oh yeah or whatever but it's like that's like joseph cotton's whole performance in that movie is just like he's someone that it's fun to watch listen to people talk and look at people as they're talking to him because like he lives this sort of like reporter character and, and the inquisitiveness and the curiosity of the character is so lived through through that performance um and it's like the same kind of thing you get here with robert pattinson yeah one other thing I want to... Pra- two other things I want to praise about the costume. One, I love the fucking Batarang logo that he's got. Yes. And he pulls it out and it's a knife. Uh-huh. Yes, please. Thank you. Very good. Um, he doesn't use that until late in the movie when he is going back into the Riddler's house. And I, when I realized what they were doing, I'm like, oh, shit. And then he does use it in the final action scene. And it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Love that. The sound design in this movie oh, is yeah. outstanding. And one of the things I love is how many sounds the Batsuit has with it. Mm-hmm. There are so many big, meaty sound effects of like him moving his body and like the leather and metal flexing. Or, I mean, goddamn, the sound of his like boots walking yes. around. 
there's a whole sonic atmosphere to the Batman costume that is another thing I think other versions have missed. It's as much about how it sounds in that space. And this is something animation you actually don't normally get because it's just mm. not something you're going to think about. But in a live action movie, it's so cool how it how the sound interacts with the mise-en-scene. And it's one of the things I love about this movie. Yeah, I mean, there's just this like very powerful feeling to Batman whenever he's on screen, which is what you want, right? You need... Like, he he consumes every single, like, image in, like, scene that he occupies because that's the whole point of the character, right? That's, like, what Bruce Wayne is trying to create and become is this symbolic entity that is undefeatable, unstoppable. Um, and so th all of the things about the costume and the way he carries himself is meant to, like, emphasize that. And I think every time you see him, it feels like it's a very conscious choice to make him feel like self-consciously powerful not just that he is purely powerful but you the audience sees he is putting that power on and he is performing it and acting it and people physically respond to it around him even when he it's you know it's like the other cops and stuff which is like some of the best stuff in the whole movie is just seeing like cops that like know that batman's not going to attack them but them just physically responding to batman's presence and the sound is a big part of that and I think my the best sound work is his fucking boots. And there's, like, I swear there's just a little bit of a cowboy jingle jangle that they put yes. in there um, that you get. Because there's lots of just great sequences of him slowly walking towards someone. And it's a bit like, you know, they did the same thing in the fucking Mandalorian. That's like, you just got to get, like, that jingle of spurs. Even when it makes no sense, he's not wearing fucking spurs. <laughs> but, you, but it's such a distinctive, very cinematic sound effect that conveys like masculinity and strength and and like the the potential of sudden violence is all contained in this little jingle sound effect that goes along with that walk um and and it's just there a little bit and then it's all like the fucking pebbles and dirt and gravel scraping on the bottom of that boot um and and there's such a fixation on it that has that great batman quality of where from like the villain's perspective batman is effectively fucking you know jason or whatever you know he's a he's a a slasher movie villain because he's just slowly walking towards you you can't shoot him you can't stop him he and he is going to get you and fuck you up and get what he needs from you because he's batman he is vengeance he is fear itself the whole shebang and and like the only way that his shtick works is if you fully commit to this thing of where he almost feels supernatural with the way he is so unstoppable outside of, you know, like big climactic confrontations with the main villain or whatever, where the, it needs to be a formidable thing. But random goons, it's it's like they're nothing to Batman and they convey that perfectly. And even the villains. Like, I love that this movie does not at any point contrive a punching match between him uh -huh. and the Riddler. Yeah. The Riddler specifically says to him, I'm weak, I couldn't do any of this. Because but none of, the, other than Bane in some incarnations, there really aren't interesting Batman villains who he throws a punch yeah. at. Like, because that's not who Batman is, and, and the villains are interesting because of other ways they come around at Batman, you know? Scarecrow never throws a punch at Batman. Scarecrow gets under his skin, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and they get that with all the villains in this movie. Penguin is never going to stand up to Batman physically, and so it's very funny when Batman finally has Penguin in his grasp, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, all of that is fucking great. Um, we've, so we've talked about Batman... And we've talked about Gordon. They got both of those right. Alfred, not in this movie a ton, but he's played by Andy Serkis, and I loved him. Yeah. Great Alfred. 
Yes, yeah, it's 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 a it's a more sort of like utilitarian use of the character, right? Like he's not in it a lot, but uh, particularly the the scene in the hospital where, um, which is a great scene that like introduces some of like the core, um, sort of uncertainty around like the history and like the past, which is another sort of key noir element. It's like you're never really sure what has happened or like where the roots of some of this stuff comes from but um it's like the one time that bruce really connects with another person and like opens yeah. up to them um i think that scene in particular was really well done andy circus is obviously like very out of left field casting but i think it's so perfect because we've had a ton of alfreds and alfred is someone every version of batman gets right like yeah. batman 89 and then those movies where you have uh, that version of alfred michael goff he's wonderful we love that alfred alfred in the nolan movies is michael kane he's a lot of people's favorite parts of those movies um uh, alfred in the the snyder films is is jeremy irons he's really good yeah. particularly in the mm -hmm. snyder cut of justice league he's fantastic um but like so how are you gonna how are you gonna get one up on michael kane and jeremy irons as alfred the answer is you have to zig when they expect you to zag a little bit and so andy circus is is a little you know he is not like a classic british theater actor in the same way you know mm -hmm. so he doesn't carry he doesn't feel like the butler in fact they very clearly denote him here he was probably their bodyguard in yeah. the past they mention him being in the circus which is the John Lacare invented term for the MI6 so like he has a different kind of background and he just brings a very different energy while having that requisite warmth that I think is the key thing for Alfred to get um, obviously Matt Reeves and Andy Serkis have this long working relationship yeah. because of the Apes films but I think it's just very inspired casting and I think that chemistry they have is really special and really interesting yeah it's it's a it's a really good take on the character and luckily if they want to like do a big like new thing and they like have alfred become fucking man bat or something you've got the world's premier you know motion capture actor right there um they're they're just poised to have something horrible happen to alfred and have him turn into a monster and you could realize it very easily with handy circus playing him has that happened in like new 52 or something no uh, that's i okay. don't th i mean well <laughs> That has probably happened. I've never read a comic where that's happened. I'm sure that Alfred has been turned into a monster at some point. It is completely inevitable. Um, I'm sure it's also not canon, but it is technically canon because it happened in Earth fucking 27 or some shit. Um, but no, that's that's just me thinking it would be very funny if, like, because I was the comment I was going to say originally was like, and it's, it's just cool to see Andy Serkis in a movie where he just gets to be Andy Serkis because you don't see that that often. You know, he's been in some stuff like he's Claw in Black Panther and stuff. But then I had the thought of, but wouldn't it be hilarious if the reason why they cast him is because they want him to just become a monster at some point? They're like, <laughs> we got to plant that seed early. That would be fun, but no, I, I like having Andy Serkis. Just be Andy Serkis, and he's wonderful. Yeah. Love him as a, as a person, as an actor. He's great. Um, I want to hit some of the bigger characters in a little bit, but let's hit some of the other just small, like, Batman standbys. The Penguin. Yeah. Colin Farrell. I love what they do with the Penguin in this movie. I love that it is a ridiculous big makeup prosthetics performance where Colin Farrell is just completely unrecognizable. Yeah. I love the way they do the nose on the prosthesis where when he's just standing there, it doesn't look that weird until he scrunches his face and suddenly it's the penguin nose. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of little details like that. I love that he talks like he's in, he's like fucking Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy. I'm walking here, that kind yeah. of thing. I, I think it is a hilarious, great take on the character uh, and I would be very happy to see more penguin in the future. Yeah, it's a very good take on the character. And just, like, the way he fits into the plot, right? It's the whole, like, you have to have this, like, 
ancillary like criminal element that you is like not really a part of like the main thing you're investigating but comes up in sort of like the sphere of it um that's like such a trope in noir stuff and and having that character be the penguin you know it's a very batman thing like it's it's one of the yeah. things why batman typically has a lot of stories where you have a number of different villains in them but the villains don't like play the primary role is a pretty typical structure for a Batman story because he'll hit up Penguin or Black Mask or whoever um, while he's really chasing Joker or Ra's al Ghul or some other character, right? Like Riddler is honestly a character that gets used in that capacity a lot. Um, and so it's, it's like fun to see them see like that utility of Batman's really rich, varied rogues gallery, like like that came about from necessity of the kinds of stories you tell with Batman that aren't really things you do with other superhero characters, you know? Like Spider-Man's not hitting up Doc Ock when he's trying to take out Green Goblin. Like those stories right. don't work that way. Um, but bringing that dynamic and putting it in here, uh, very smart. And yeah, the whole performance, the whole take on the character, it's ridiculous in the best way possible. Um, and and I just love that they cast Colin Farrell and that you would never be able to tell. Like, nobody, no. if you, <laughs> even if you put the fucking picture next to, to them, it's like, here's Colin Farrell without it, here's it with the makeup on, you would never be able to tell that it's him. It's such completely transformative makeup. Yeah, but it's... But it's exactly the kind of thing that works for this movie. I love that with the whole El Rata versus La Rata thing, uh -huh. it's the penguin who knows that. Yeah. He's like, that's the worst Spanish I ever heard. He's La Rata, La. Yeah. And I that, I was howling with laughter. Yeah, that is like, so great. What, no habla espanol? It's, yeah, the fucking, <laughs> it's the funniest shit. Okay. Yes. And then doing the like the old, you know, the classic gag of leaving him like cuffed up or whatever as they drive away. It's just... Oh and then he waddles God. like yes. a penguin because mm -hmm. they did his feet too. It's great. Oh, it's the fucking, I just, this movie's so fun. Yeah. Yeah, love that. While we're talking about the penguin, Sean, we might as well. The fucking Batmobile chase oh with him. Oh, God. When he starts revving up the Batmobile and they reveal it like it's a fucking monster in a movie, I knew we were in for something good. And that is, that's the best action sequence Batman's been in in a movie, right? Like, yeah. Jesus Christ, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a, you know, for my taste, it's a much more interesting version of a car chase than, like, the more elaborate spectacle of a Christopher Nolan one. Like, there's just the, it's got that, like, really just, like, gritty, grimy fucking quality to it that is so satisfying. This is, like, the sound design. Um, They yes. went above and beyond, like, the Call of Duty for this whole sequence. And it is, this is for me far and away easily with no contest the bat the best version of the batmobile like the batmobile is a thing i've never been like in love with with batman like it's there for like a very good utilitarian purpose but i've just never like the weird supercar that's just like utterly ridiculous has never really appealed to me fully but i love the idea that it's this like american muscle car he's found um, that looks like it, that it's not even like a new muscle car. Like, I don't know exactly what it is, but it looks like it's from something from like the fucking seventies he's found and he souped it the fuck up. He put a giant fuck off engine on the back of it. That kind of looks like a bat. Um, and that, you know, makes a sound that will like deafen everybody within a two mile radius of the goddamn thing when he turns it on. Um, and it's just this like viciously powerful old American muscle car that you would, that he would be able to drive on the streets. I think that's the thing that's always seemed dumb about the Batmobile. It's just like, 
It's the least inconspicuous thing you could ever have is here's this like <laughs> fucking 10 foot long supercar um, that has like, you know, fucking missile pods and all that shit on it. Like the Batmobile, it never looks like a car. It looks like a weird space feature car thing. Here it's like, you know, it doesn't look like a car that any random person would have. But you've seen cars like this. You've seen someone bought an old classic car and modified it and put a big engine on it. Like, it's a thing, it's rare, but it's never unheard of or unseen. So if Batman needed to drive around at night, he could drive in that car and people probably wouldn't know it was Batman. They just think it would be some, like, rich jerk-off who, you know, wants to wake up the entire neighborhood when he goes out to the clubs. <laughs> and that's it. Um, and that dynamic, I think, is, like, the only time I've really been fully sold on the Batmobile. Also because then it's just involved in this sick-ass car chase, and it jumps through the big fireball, and it's way better because it looks like a car that fucking bullet would drive in bullet, you know? It's just, yes. it's so sick. It's so sick. When he revs it up for the first time, in the theater I saw this on Thursday night, which had has a really good sound system, it literally shook the theater. Like, mm -hmm. I was, like, yeah. seven rows back, and it literally, my seat shook, and I was like, we're in for something, and we are. The way Giacchino scores that scene, all the sound design. You don't even see Batman that much in it. That's what's so good about it, is that it's the Penguin running away, yes. and Batman is just unstoppable. And Penguin even, you know, does this whole thing where he blows up seven cars, and Batman just flies through it. And then you get my favorite shot in the movie. There's, there's, I have two favorite shots. One of them is this, where it's upside down yeah. from the Penguin's perspective and Batman walking through the fire. Phenomenal. My other favorite is the shot um, when he's coming to get Falcone and it's dark and it's just lit by the bullet fire as he's fighting. Those are my two favorite shots in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I think in particular, I'm with you on both of those. And, and the upside down shot was the one they used to end that like incredible trailer for the movie where like the logo comes in over that, which yes. I almost like missed. There was a part of it that's like, they should just, even though it's like halfway through the movie, it's been going for like over an hour <laughs> at this point. They should, and they've already had the logo. They still should just have the logo coming because it's so cool. Um, yes. But no, but that sequence is obviously even better in the movie because it's, it's so long, right? It's just like Penguin is just there trapped under this car looking upside down and the fact that the whole shot as you said because it's the whole sequence is filmed basically this way is generally from penguin's pov you're with him as he's running away looking back at batman trying to avoid him and so the whole shot being framed from the perspective that penguin would be seeing him which is upside down um is great and that's where you get all the like slow walking and the jingle of the fucking invisible spurs that batman wears that i guess he got them from wonder woman who she has her invisible yes. airplane gave him his <laughs> invisible spurs so he could sound cool when he walks um, and then I love like his like slow ducking into frame and like twisting his head so that it's not even like upside down. Now Batman's like sideways on the frame in like this weird way. Um, yeah, it's just a it's it's a very good example. Thing like I said earlier that as neo noir type or noir noir type stuff goes on, typically the like filmic and visual space yeah. it exists in becomes twisted and distorted and hyper real. That's a very good example of doing that as things become more ridiculous. Just the cinematic space everything exists in becomes weird and unfamiliar. It actually reminds me of very specifically, I'm, I'm thinking of this because I ordered um, some physical versions of these comics. I only had the, the digital ones for a long time. Um, some of the Scott Snyder Batman run that are very clear influence on this. This is like the new 52 stuff where the Court of Owls comes from. And the Court of Owls comics do this exact thing 
where Batman in that is drugged and at a certain point the images start becoming askew such that you have to twist the book physically to read it until eventually you're looking at the you're holding the book upside down to read it I'm betting that this is a little bit of a cue off of that sequence and turning it into like a cinematic version of that they do uh, I mean we'll have a fuller conversation with the cinematography later but they do a lot of really creative stuff with that where like this movie really really uses like anamorphic widescreen uh, and, and anamorphic lenses the way it kind of blurs the edges mm -hmm. it really heightens that to like focus you in different ways it does a lot of stuff with like low depth of field and like blurred backgrounds and all sorts of things that and even the whole color scheme of the movie which is basically deep dark blacks and like deep vivid reds mm -hmm. feels very much like comic book coloring choices to me yeah. there's a lot of frames in this that you could like that scene I was talking about where he's coming down the hallway and it's just lit by the bullet fire you could take yes. some of those individual images put some of the black images there put them on a page and it would look like a comic book page and it would be amazing yeah you definitely like can see it as like two pages with like three by three panels um like it very much yes. is spaced like a comic book sequence um that um, would be much easier to do like it's a very comic book idea because that would be like a very like you know not easy because drawing is hard but like compared to filming it and having to light it in all the exactness you'd need to do that to actually like film that sequence it's much easier to draw the way that that would work um and so yeah i agree with you that that scene has a very comic book um style and aesthetic and like pacing to it um just executed in live action yeah, and obviously, I mean, maybe you can tell us later in the plot. I mean, this is pulling off of a really wide array of Batman source yeah. material, like much more directly than most comic book movies ever do. Like they often pull on characters, but like there's lots of direct lifts, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's like yeah. direct lifts from Batman Year One. There's direct lifts from Year Zero and some of the other Scott Snyder stuff. There's direct lifts from. Uh, this is like one where like. They, they always say they're inspired by A Long Halloween, um, which is like one of the great classic Batman graphic novels. Jeff Loeb writing Tim Solley's art, which is fucking classic. And like, if you look up the Wikipedias for all of these Batman movies, they basically always say, yeah, and, and The Long Halloween was an inspiration. And none of the movies are anything like The Long Halloween. This is actually like The Long Halloween. Um, yes. It actually, the first, you know, it starts on Halloween. And then the like elaborate like nature of the unfoldingness of the plot that's a good example of a story where Batman visits multiple villains while he's investigating this one case. Um, like, this is actually pulling elements from the way that that story is constructed. Um, not just saying, oh, The Long Halloween is a cool-sounding story that is a very famous Batman one. So we'll say, yeah, I read Long Halloween, and it influenced the scripting process. Um, yeah, no, this one feels like they poured over some fucking comics, and that's cool. All right, other characters we should talk about. Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. Yeah. I think she's fantastic. It's a great take on the character. It honestly almost feels like a direct refutation of The Dark Knight Rises because <laughs> it's she's being used in a fairly similar space to what Nolan did, but competently, with that being the key word here, and it's just a great version of the character in the much more modern like Catwoman as kind of a sidekick version, you know? Yeah, and her being like, you know, the the thing that the character when she became an anti-hero type is like the reason why they did that is for her to be the full film fatale for Batman, right? And it's like, it's the one of the reasons why it's one of the only sort of romantic things you can do with Batman as Catwoman because it plays into the noir stuff. Um, yeah, and that's one of the places where you see a lot of, like, it's a very Batman, your one take on the character. Um, she's like either directly a sex worker or like sex worker adjacent. I think it's like a little bit ambiguous whether or not she like is actually a sex worker or she just works at a waitress where there are sex workers. 
um or at the bar the uh the god the iceberg lounge um where there are sex workers there um where she is like directly a sex worker in year one um but she's like in that space and like having her thematically be someone who like is comes from an impoverished and in unprivileged background which is like a big important part of the more modern take on the character and that's one of the places where like really fully committing to that portrayal is a lot more compelling than what they the whatever the fuck they're trying to do with dark Knight rises i don't know what they're trying to do with dark Knight rises in that character but she serves as a very powerful contrast to batman and his privileged position and they even heighten it by making her black right so like it it which typically she's white but there have been other black cat women um like notably the the harley quinn cartoon did that as well um i think it's like it's a good take on the character um that heightens like the different kinds of contrast she has with batman yeah, and Eartha Kitt is black too, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, from this very different version of the character. Yes. But we have had Catwoman is, is a character who is portrayed more diversely in, in various media. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, yeah, I think Kravitz is great. I really love how the entire relationship is is drawn and written in this movie where sometimes, and Dark Knight Rises really suffers from this, the Batman-Catwoman thing can be super patriarchal. Like, yeah. it's, Catwoman, you're bad for being liberal and poor, and I'm rich, and you should listen to me. That's what The Dark Knight Rises is. It's very, very patriarchal. Um, and it's bad, and it doesn't work. In this movie, when Batman is patriarchal, he gets called on his bullshit. Yeah. Like, when he's, like, a little judgy about where she works, she calls him on it and tells her story. And then Robert Pattinson's Batman says the words, I'm sorry, uh-huh. which like, what a revelation because we've just had the three Nolan movies where he is never wrong. And now he says, I'm sorry. It's great. Um, and when they do, and this is key for me, this is the first live action Batman that really engages with the idea that he doesn't kill people. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tim Burton movies, obviously he kills whoever he wants. Same with Batfleck. In the Nolan movies, he nominally doesn't do it, but he finds a lot of creative outs for killing them anyway, and it's all bullshit. In this movie, he doesn't kill people, and when he tells Catwoman not to, they have arranged the plot in such a way that it is not him lecturing her. It is him being her friend and romantic interest saying, for your sake, I know you don't actually want to do this. Because they've contrived a situation where the person she wants to kill, Falcone, very likely killed his parents. And so he has skin in this game too. He also probably deep down wants to fucking hurt this guy. And so when he says don't kill him, it comes from a place of pain for him too. And I love the line he has there when he takes the gun from him. He says, you've been through enough. Like, don't do this to yourself. You know, you don't have to go down that road with him. And I just, like... Because the thing about Batman not killing people is it's such an actually rich vein for exploration if you want to do it. Be- either for him being a hypocrite or for him being someone who this is this is the thing he won't do to hurt himself. And I like how this movie treats it so much because it leads to this really beautiful emotional moment where, no, this is not Batman talking down to Catwoman. This is him saying, like, I, I've been here and I feel for you. And I don't want you to hurt anymore because I care about you. And it's a huge part of his character arc yeah. in this movie. It's great. It's essential. Yeah, it, it comes from like a place of deep empathy, which is really critical. Because then it also comes from like a major running theme in the movie, which is like, you know, you're like the complicated relationship between children and their parents. Right. Um, and that like a big part of that is then 
you know, doing the thing that has become more common. I know that the Telltale Batman series did it, but of like making the Waynes not these like completely perfect, untarnished, uncompromisable bastions of hope and goodness that have been killed. Um, but instead that they were people that were powerful people in the society and thus were to some extent, and we don't know how much because we get two different versions of the story, but they were corrupt and they did bad things. Um, and that like they hurt people um, and they failed as well. And they used their power in ways that hurt and killed people. Um, and Batman has to confront that. Um, and then also, you know, uh, Carmen Falcone is Catwoman's father in this version. And so there's like that as well. Like, I think a part of Batman's empathy there is also like, even if he's a scumbag, like you don't like don't kill your dad you know it's like it's right. gonna it's gonna hurt you too much someday even if it's it feels justified now like this will come back on you in some way um and so him being there um yeah to like, like expressing that empathy is like the first like real batman thing he does of like the the aspirational version of batman that is the other end of the like bat family version where he is like this icon of empathy where like instead of him being a, a symbol of fear he is someone that is in many ways the most empathetic of all of the like iconic dc heroes because he's the one who has been through the most and is most driven out of compassion and empathy to help other people. And that's the more aspirational version of Batman. And you see that his journey in this movie is him working towards that version of it and, and less of the young, angry, vengeful version of the character. And that's like, this is that kind of key moment where he begins that shift. And then the end of the movie is where he completes it by extending it, not just to Catwoman, but to everybody. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. It's a, it's a really what? key scene that, as you say, is taking this very important part of the character in most interpretations of him, which is that he has a hard and fast rule. He will not kill people and making it a very like real empathetic lived thing that comes from a reason that drives him and that has positive impact on the world. And like, that is a, that's a, that's just like what I want from the character. Like I think that's like at the end of the day, even with all the noir stuff, Batman is still a superhero and that's the part of him that makes him a superhero. And it's nice to like, see that be represented in what is still a very adult complex, like gritty, violent movie. We also get off of all of this, a very funny moment where he's with Gordon and they're going to the orphanage and he says, no guns. And Gordon says, yeah, it's your shit, man. <laughs> yeah. I fucking love that. I love Gordon's like, dude, you're the guy in a bad suit. All I have is this. Let me have the gun. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes, that is another classic Gordon and Batman buddy cop moment. <laughs> it's just every Gordon line is perfect. And Jeffrey Wright, every fucking delivery is like that. It's just so, yes. yeah, it's, yeah, it's very good. Okay. So they nailed Catwoman. They've done all these characters great. What about our boy, the serial killer, the Riddler, played by Paul Dano, uh, who clearly cast here because of his classic work in There Will Be Blood. Uh -huh. It is a very, very There Will Be Blood performance. Um, I really love this take on the Riddler. What about you? Yeah, it's 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 what you want with your like sort of modern, dark version of the Riddler where he's like a weird Zodiac killer type serial killer. Um, it's just... You know, the Riddler is one of those villains that I've always thought is fucking great. I love Riddler forever. And, uh, you know, we got a very good comic version of Riddler with Frank Gorsha in the 60s version, which is fucking great and iconic. And then we suffered through Jim Carrey and Batman forever. Uh, very tragically, we watched that movie for the podcast. Um, <laughs> and then now it's like, this is a proper, like, 
dark take, like more modern take on the Riddler, um, complete with riddles. Like, right, he's he's that character. They're not hiding from it. They're not trying to make him something else. He does the whole shtick. It's just it turns out that like there that that it can be both funny and horrifying to have this person be writing out these games and creating these games and these riddles and puzzles for people to solve while he is killing them and also having them be ridiculous you know like they're some of the puzzles are just like a complete absurd like oh you know the funniest being the like url is the most adam west batman like yes oh, like this like la like whatever it's like he used l instead of law would he make that kind of mistake it's like you are l you are l like you could just hear adam west fucking deliver that line and then going to computer it like he's got a fucking bat laptop there or some shit and they like type in the yes. fucking url address right so it's like they get all the ridiculous parts of the riddles and just play it totally straight um and that's what you want from the riddler like it's just exactly to me like the platonic ideal of a live action version of the character Yes, I've seen some criticism of this movie with people saying, eh, the riddles weren't that hard. It didn't make Batman seem like a great detective. They were stupid. I'm like, that's the point, yeah. guys. Like, the the Riddler's riddles are never, like, the best riddles in the world. And especially for, like, he's also he's a fucking crazy guy killing people. Like, it, there's, a, there's a whole different purpose to it here. And the whole El La Rata Alada thing is fucking great yeah. and funny and very comic booky. You have so many great moments of Jeffrey Wright having to say that. You know, I love when he's got the the cups. He's like, "You're the stool pigeon, right?" <laughs> so yeah. they get the they get the term <laughs> "stool pigeon" in this movie. I mean, come on! It's a rat with wings. What's a rat with wings? Pigeon? A stool pigeon? Penguins have wings. That's probably yeah. the best fucking Gordon line in the whole movie. <laughs> See him going, "Well, penguins have wings too." <laughs> it's it's yes. so funny. Um, yeah, but yeah. So I love all of that. But he's also legitimately scary in this uh -huh. movie, and I love that. Like, he is a terrifying villain. They they pull a little bit from the Dark Knight here in, in the, like, videos that he makes and stuff, but they're more in the vein of, like, Saw than they are what happens in, like, the Dark Knight. Yeah. Um, and there's all of the live streaming element and the internet side of this. And I do think where they go with him in the final act, when you finally have Paul Dano out of the costume and everything, is really smart. I mm -hmm. love the idea... Of when we get to the end. So for the whole movie. And I've seen this movie twice by the way. And the second time really helped clarify this for me. Batman is very clearly scared. That the Riddler has figured out Bruce Wayne is Batman. And he's anticipating that everything's going to fall apart. It's why he has yeah. that goodbye moment with Gordon where he says. You're a good cop Jim. You know that whole mm -hmm. thing. And Gordon's more confused than touched. Because yeah. like what is Batman doing complimenting me. But then over the course of that interrogation scene you realize that the Riddler is obsessed with both sides of Batman because he hates Bruce Wayne because Bruce Wayne is everything. He stands for everything that has made Riddler into the person he is. Yeah. This rich orphan, like they wanted to be sad for this or quote unquote orphan who lived in a tower with billions of dollars. Riddler's yeah. got a point there. And and like so an he, ex MI six agent to take care yes. of him. And and I love they also like one thing they do here is that he's got a maid also, right? Um who's yeah. only in a couple of scenes, but it makes it clear that it's not just Alfred. There's an entire like servant class support structure that has like been helping Bruce Wayne for the right. like ten plus years that since his parents have been killed. Yeah. So Bruce Wayne stands for that. And he's obsessed and hates Bruce Wayne. 
But Batman, he idolizes, mm-hmm. and he loves Batman, and he thinks Batman like inspired him to do this in a certain sense, almost in a in a like, you know, Mark David Chapman way, like the guy who killed Lenin or yeah. the guy who went after Reagan, and is like weirdly obsessed with. In that case, it was Jodie Foster. Just the weird like obsessions with celebrities. Um, although it's a little more one to one here because Batman is going around saying I'm vengeance, yeah. and so he's obsessed, loves Batman, and obsessed hates Bruce Wayne. And that is a way of playing with the duality of the character that I've never seen mm-hmm. and I think is fascinating and is really cool and leads to the movie's ultimate thematic punch, which is Batman saying the words I was wrong at the end of the movie and then a, and then aspiring to be something else, which I never thought we were going to get on film. Man, Batman is never allowed to be wrong. It's really cool. Yeah, that whole scene uh, near the end of the movie of the Riddler talking to Batman and and starting with the like the Bruce Wayne stuff and him going off and off on Bruce Wayne and you're not sure and Batman is slowly realizes over the course of it that that actually Riddler doesn't realize that he is talking to Bruce Wayne or probably doesn't realize there is still like an uncertainty there of whether or not Riddler maybe does know but is so completely separating the two identities that it doesn't matter to him or if he's just completely ignorant of it I think it's like intentionally left uncertain um but you know he's he's uh, idolizing the Batman persona as this thing to aspire to this other side of the coin that Riddler is like trying to set up opportunities through which Batman can flush out and and like open up the gateways to the kind of real change that the Riddler wants to see in the world which is you know just like basically you know it's it's Char's fucking meteor from Char's counterattack just destroy everything create a blank slate and from that maybe something better will be built um kind of vision of where he wants things to go um and and so in encountering Batman that way and of just like totally ripping the Bruce Wayne shit to shreds and Batman and Bruce Wayne Batman having to stand there hear all of that and there's like a tear that starts coming in on his eye which is like a great piece of acting by Robert Pattinson whether or not like he physically was crying or he had like makeup do it like whatever that choice was to have like Batman is like starting to tear up because he is being confronted with like the deep-seated hypocrisy of his life and it's brutal because he you know he has suffered really right like it's you know Obviously, the message of this isn't that, like, rich kids shouldn't be sad when their parents are murdered in front of them. It's awful. It's right. tragic. <laughs> it's traumatic. Like, you know, it shouldn't happen to anybody. It's, you know, it, you're a kid. You can't, you know, it's not your fault that you're born by, you know, scumbag rich people that have destroyed a bunch of lives. Like, you're just this child. Um, but Batman isn't a kid anymore. He is a full-grown adult man and has to confront the reality of the life that he's lived in the world that he has lived it in relative to other people. And he's been so blind to that hypocrisy in that, um, and all that. And, and the access to power he's had in a structural way that he has blown off multiple times over the course of the movie, where the like progressive politician is like coming up to him being like, Bruce Wayne, like help us out, do these things. Like you're sitting on all this money. And he's so focused on his like mission to, to fight the criminal element um, and just basically having a fucking tam- temper tantrum as a 30-year-old man. Um, he's, you know, going through, he's doing all of that and having to confront the reality of his own hypocrisy and confront that, like, while he has been traumatized and it has affected him, that it doesn't ex- excuse or justify any of the shit that he's done and that he is as much a part of the problem as the Riddler ever was. Um, it is the, 
you know, it's not the first time I've ever seen a Batman story do it, but it's the first time I've ever seen a live action Batman movie do it. Um, and it's done incredibly well here. Um, and, and a big part of that is the way that the Riddler is written and the way that Paul Dano performs it of this like unhinged two sides of this character and, and the way, as you see, he's obsessed with both facets of the Batman persona and shoving that in Bruce Wayne's face that as Bruce Wayne, he has failed and as Batman, he has failed um, and that he has gone the wrong direction with both paths of his life. I mean, just for superhero movies in general, the idea of the hero themselves being wrong is so rare. Yeah. Like, there are definitely good movies where there is a larger wrong that they have not realized and then move to right. This is the move Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther both make in that the heroes in those movies are in an aristocracy sort of thing. They're both kings and they realize that their culture, their civilization has done wrongs that they must now make up for. But it's not that Thor or T'Challa specifically did the wrong, right? Yeah. And we've always talked about this with Batman. If you are not, like, dealing with Batman doing some weird heinous shit sometimes, the only way to do it seriously is Batman 66 uh -huh. and make it comic, right? And so they finally do it. I love that. On my second viewing of this movie, there is a, there's a move they make here that I caught that I didn't really fully get the first time that I think is great, where the sequence of events here is they, they capture the Riddler, um, and after they capture the Riddler, Batman is in the room with all the cops going through all of the evidence, and he finds the letter to the Batman in the cage with the bat, uh -huh. and they also have the little trowel there that is the tucker for the carpet that yeah. he used to kill the mayor. And the card just says, my confession. And Batman and Gordon don't know what that means, and they just sort of put the, the tucker thing away. And then Batman goes and talks to Riddler, and that's when Riddler realizes that Batman hasn't figured everything out and he, he's like oh you're not as smart as I thought you were right and then Batman goes back and it's through the interaction with this cop which is my favorite interaction he has uh -huh. with the cop because he doesn't say a word in this whole scene and the cop just keeps offering info but the cop says hey my uncle was a was a you know construction worker or something and uh, that's that's a carpet tool you use it to like do this thing with the carpet and Batman realizes that and it's not spoken but I feel like the implication of this whole sequence of events is Bruce Wayne has never done a day's honest labor in his uh -huh. life. He yes. has no idea what any of this stuff is. And the Riddler profiled him wrong. The yeah. Riddler assumes that Batman is like him, and he's half right. Batman is also an orphan, but he's a very, very privileged orphan who has no idea what this kind of tool is. So Riddler, in his, in his mind's profile of Batman, assumed he would know what the carpet tool was for, but Bruce Wayne would have no point of reference for that thing. And it's not until he meets just a random beat cop who had an uncle who was a blue-collar worker that he figures this out. I think that is a great little thematic thing they do in that scene. That's great. Yeah, I didn't I didn't catch that because I caught, like, the, the, you know, the answer to the confession was the thing that's underneath the carpet. But, yes, that's a very good read. I think it is what they're, they're doing there of that it is the the Riddler's idea of Batman is the like underprivileged, like, you know, driven into the dirt, um, uh, the sort of person on the margins who has like risen up to violently throw off those oppressors. When in fact, it's like, in many ways, it's the exact opposite of that thing. It is a person who actually was of extreme privilege, who's now using their privilege to fight people who are on the margins, which are, you know, criminals and, and, and people who, you know, oftentimes don't have any other resort other than to move to crime to try to survive. 
um and yes and that that it is all represented by this one tool of labor that batman sees it only because like before that like he immediately identifies it as the murder weapon but he's like oh yeah that's the murder weapon if you match it to the wounds it'll fit the like length or whatever and that's the only thing he sees it as he doesn't think about like what its actual purpose is um yeah that's that's a very good catch this is a smart fucking movie yes. like that's the kind of stuff i love and um, the kind of thing you yeah. would only catch on a on a second viewing like it is definitely yeah. like it was a movie because i just saw it yesterday and it was a movie as soon as i came out of it i did just kind of want to watch it again as with any great noir movie because noir movies are full of that kind of stuff where once you know the full scope of the plot and where it's moving when you rewatch it you see all these other elements of like oh that's why this character said this line that's what was happening in this piece um so it's, it's nice to, to know that that will hold true for this uh film as well Oh, it totally does. I was, you know, I was wondering, like, if I know all of the plot turns, will it be as interesting? And it is, because there's so many other things to pay yeah. attention to. And what came through to me on a second viewing was the character side of it. Like, that this is a really well-character-arced movie. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about next, is just this general, you know, let's not go through every step of the mystery. Uh -huh. That's unnecessary. But the overall thrust of it is Riddler is killing all of these high-ranking government people the mayor and the police commissioner and the da all these high-level people who were directly involved in this very corrupt scheme that riddler uncovered because he was an accountant uh -huh. for the gotham renewal fund which is this is a genuinely good thing thomas wayne did this big billion dollar investment in infrastructure for gotham but thomas wayne died um under circumstances that may or may not have been very corrupt and then all of the people around him went in like fucking vultures and took over that fund and used it as a big slush fund. And Carmine Falcone came out of that and became basically the de facto mayor of Gotham. That's the overall thing that Bruce uncovers. And then there is this question of his family's culpability in all of it. Um, and that's the Riddler's overall plot. And the Riddler even sees it as him and Batman killing these people together. Like there's that haunting line where he says, oh, we didn't get Bruce Wayne, but we got the other ones, didn't we? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you were in on this with me, buddy. Um, and I think it is just, it's such a, it's the perfect version of if you're going to do a noir story in Batman, this is so perfect. It involves all the big players. It's like Gotham is the most corrupt place on earth. The, it's like mind boggling levels of corruption. It's a great series of payoffs. Yeah, and, and it, you know, putting Batman pretty firmly on, like, the wrong side of the line for a lot of the movie. Yes. That, like, you know, he's not actually fighting against, like, the corruption, right? Like, he's he's fighting against Riddler and then, like, slowly has to, like, sort of shift tracks onto realizing, oh, like, there's this whole bigger thing. Like, this, is, like, this isn't just, like, oh, there was, like, a rat that, like, you know, ratted out um, someone or whatever. It's like, no, this is, like... As again, like this is the film noir thing is as you peel back the curtains, it's like you see that there's this whole deep like understructure of corruption that like sort of informs the whole society that you live in and like the fundamental ways in which it is wrong or corrupt um, and being and having to confront it very directly. Um, and yeah, that's it's just a very classic, massive scheme um, that Batman uh, like I think like every little step of the way as it like peels off layer after layer after layer. Um, is very effective and then for me the thing that is most effective um and is for certainly for a live action movie but for even most takes on batman's a pretty radical thing is the directly putting the wayne family in there and saying that they were a part of it like to what extent like were they bad people good people whatever like 
they were people with power and they did do bad things and they did get this fucking reporter killed. Um, did Thomas Wayne know that that would happen? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Thomas Wayne's dead. Um, uh, we have two versions of that story. Um, but that to me is the thing that like, um, it's really critical to this story in, in fully committing to it. Um, fully committing to Batman having to reconcile with the the hypocrisy of what he is and what he represents as a rich, privileged person um, enacting his version of vengeance on the world um, and then having to see, oh, that he is himself a tool of the corruption he's trying to fight against. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, I, you know, there are these, like, two versions of the story, like you said, and we probably trust Alfred more because Alfred has the better interests at heart, but Alfred also was close to these people, and so, yeah. like... What is his bias there? Um, but one of my favorite details in all of this is the way the movie uses the song Ava Maria, which mm -hmm. is how the movie starts with, with Riddler looking down the scope at the mayor. And it comes back several times. And we learn that its origin was in this moment that is the primal moment for Riddler when Thomas Wayne announces his candidacy and the renewal fund at the orphanage and Riddler was there in the crowd mm -hmm. with the kids and they were there was a choir singing Ava Maria and that's why he is obsessed with this song and why the movie keeps coming back to it and it is such a good like symbol of all of that is this this rich guy Thomas Wayne on one level trying to do like a lot of good he's he's got this orphanage he's made he's got this renewal fund he's looking into but he is also trying to become mayor in what is pretty clearly like a vanity bid you know mm -hmm. Um, and he's prioritizing this and what will ultimately drive him to do this horrible thing is, is, you know, the, and this is where I do not fully believe Alfred is, um, the, that, that, oh, he didn't do this for his campaign at all. I don't really believe that. Um, and but even if something he was did, gonna come... like, it's still yeah. like whether or not he did it to save his political career or whether or not he did it to protect the like reputation of his wife, like either way he is like being incredibly selfish one of them is just a yes. slightly more noble version of selfish but he's still as a person like like is in this position trying to do great public good like willing to face up to the hardship of having like legitimate things about his family known right it's not like the reporter was going to publish something that was a lie nobody directly contradicts what the reporter was trying to say just that he was trying to say things that the wayne family would like to keep unsaid um and so like instead of choosing to face up against that and deal with it and still try to do public good instead he tries to get that guy erased to what extent he knew he was going to get erased is left ambiguous we don't know um but like at either rate like he was playing with fire and got a person killed right and he selfish should have known yeah and even alfred says he should have known better that was his mistake yeah. um and it's a really really fascinating sequence of events and and just as you say, forces Bruce Wayne and I think really just crucially forces the audience mm -hmm. who has never in a Hollywood movie been confronted with this reality that Bruce Wayne comes from incredible power. And yeah. like, even if the Waynes meant to do all the good in the world, you know, power has problems associated with it. Let's just put it that way. Mm -hmm. There's no way to be that powerful and be, you know, completely good with it in, in that sense, right? Yeah, there's no, and, like, no high profile politician is squeaky clean right like nobody's no. getting there and, and is perfect yeah i also like that we get three different possibilities for what happened to his parents which mm -hmm. is falcone says and pretty transparently lying that maroney did it 
Alfred says it's possible Falcone did it because because Thomas Wayne was going to go to the police. But then Alfred also says, or it could have just been some random thug. I also like that he, for the first time ever in a Batman movie, extends empathy to the killer and says, who fell on hard times and got spooked. Mm -hmm. Like, that little line does a lot for me. And I like that you can read it one of those three ways. And honestly, the thing I get out of the movie is it probably was just some random criminal. Because what's Falcone afraid of? That a cop will know something and then he can pay the cop off, right? Like, you know whatever it is. And I like the possibility that it was also, maybe it was just a totally random act of violence and there is no meaning to it. And either way, we're never going to know and the movie doesn't try to solve it. Yeah, and that's, again, that's like this pure noir element of this, the ambiguity of the past and of history and how it is like inaccessible even as you're trying to get to it. Or we talked about this a lot with Mask of the Phantasm because it's like kind of the primary theme of that movie. But it's like you want the past, you want to reaccess it, you want it to be real, but it's gone and you can never really know it, experience it again, or, or, you know, feel the things that that past used to be to you. Speaking of Falcone, uh, John Turturro is great in this. Yes. This was like, him in this was a real, like, revelation of how the fuck was John Turturro not like a major character in at least one season of The Sopranos like because he's basically just playing a Sopranos character in this and it's so good um as this just scumbag fucking mob boss in the iceberg lounge and all that shit um particularly his scene we've already talked about in like the daylight of him interacting with Bruce Wayne and the way he carries himself as so completely untouchable um I just I love this performance. Like I, I, it, it makes me very sad that there wasn't some sort of season seven of the Sopranos with fucking John Turturro as like the season long antagonist or something. He's, he's phenomenal. Um, it's kind of funny. My, my brother has not seen a lot of the like movies that John Turturro is actually famous for, like the Coen brothers movies and stuff. Uh-huh. And so he was saying like, I don't know if I've seen him in a, in a movie this good. And cause if your point of reference is the way Hollywood has generally used John Turturro, like in the fucking transformers movies, uh-huh. that might be true. This is definitely one of the better uses of Turturro in a big budget movie. Like it's, he's giving an actual John Turturro performance and that's awesome. Cause he's the other big bad of the movie, yeah. right? Like, and, and he is a villain much in kind of in the way like Christopher Walken is in Batman Returns, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Walken a little more heightened, obviously, for a whole bunch of reasons. But yeah, he's he's very good in this. And I think the whole because he leaves a big shadow on the movie and I had actually forgotten he was even going to be in this. So it was just a nice surprise to see a Batman movie with him in it. Yeah, and, and it was a thing where I feel like I hadn't seen him in anything in a while. So when he popped on screen because, yeah, I had forgotten if I had heard he was cast. I didn't remember it. Um, and so when he popped up, I'm like, oh my fucking God, it's Chunk Turturro. It was that movie where it's like, this is like one of the best cast movies I've, I've seen in a long time. Because holy shit, like oh, yeah. every every single person is perfect. Um, they are all given really juicy, meaty stuff. Like that's one of the nice things about it being this long, slow burn movie is that every actor is given like at least like three or four big scenes for them to get like really good material. Um, even if they're yeah. playing a character that's relatively minor, they get really good stuff um and so yeah john Turturro was um just an absolute pleasure to to have in this movie yeah i think that's totally true you know like alfred is only in i think four scenes i counted but he is the focus of those four scenes and gets great work in all of them they you're right they very it's a cast that is both a phenomenal cast and then very well used i just get the sense matt reeves loves working with actors you know Mm -hmm. which is an important thing for a movie like this and you know, just on that point of pacing, God, I just love 
having a big Hollywood movie that breathes like this one does Mm -hmm. because it's rare. You know, most superhero movies, certainly the way I think the Marvel model is kind of structured, but even on the other side, I think the Nolan movies move like this. It's just event, 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 like very fast, and you don't sit with stuff that much. And I like sitting with stuff. And this movie is just, it breathes like an actual movie, and that's really cool to me. Yeah, Um, it's the benefit of it not being an action movie plot. It's a detective story plot. So it's like, its whole framework for how to construct a story is just completely different than almost any other superhero movie. Um, So it just, it not only does it give itself that room to breathe, it needs that room to breathe because if it didn't, the movie would be incomprehensible. Yeah. The, The only pacing awkwardness that comes out of the movie to me, other than the very end, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, is... What I'm it was roughly the act two to act three transition, which is when they get Falcone mm-hmm. to going back into the Riddler stuff. I think that transition feels a little awkward. And on a second viewing, I realized it's because the movie is just so <laughs> good at what it does. It builds the big confrontation with Falcone in such an effectively like invested mm-hmm. way, such a compelling way that when you get the down breath of he's been shot, we fixed, you know, we we caught him, all of that stuff. Um, you're back, you realize, oh, now we have to deal with the Riddler. We're back into the action. That's the only part where there's a little awkwardness. It's easy for me to forgive because everything on either side of it is so good. Like once we jump back into the Riddler stuff, it's, as we've already talked about, some of the best scenes in the whole movie. So it's not a big problem, but I think it's almost like the movie being a victim of its own uh, quality in that the scenes like, the scene where he goes to get Falcone is where you get that great shot in the hallway lit by gunfire. You know what I mean? It's like, it's that feeling of like a climax, but it's not the movie's actual climax. Yeah, I definitely had the same feeling that there's like a little bit of a hitch in the pacing. And I think it's almost like there's a little bit of a double-edged sword because there's something about the effect that I think is narratively compelling in a way, but it also feels to a certain extent unintentional where because the attention of the movie has been pulled away from the Riddler stuff for such a sustained period of time that when the Riddler stuff re-injects itself over the Falcone stuff because the Falcone stuff gets resolved with him being shot... um, like it, it feels like you are reminded of oh right fuck right like there is this whole other side of this movie that we just haven't been to in a while and then the stuff that we've been on is so compelling because you've got John Turturro is there giving a credible performance you've got this like great action and you know Batman is getting this like you know you get that a lot of meaty character change stuff of him um, extending that empathy to Catwoman. You have this great, you know, the three visits he takes to the Iceberg Lounge, first time as Batman, the second time as Bruce Wayne, the third time as both of them. He appears, he comes as Bruce Wayne stealthily and then transforms to, to Batman halfway through. All of that has this, like, great climactic feel to it. Um, and then the rug is pulled out from under you. And I think there's something about, like, the Riddler reasserting himself into the plot of the movie in a way that is, like, generally surprising because you are so invested that you forget about it. You're kind of almost with Batman in this like, oh, fuck. Like, I've lost sight of, like, this whole other, like, the broader picture of everything that's happening here is I'm chasing Falcone for stuff that happened in the past um, and, like, all these, like, past crimes that, you know, my family was involved in. But there's this, like, ongoing series of murders I've sort of, like, forgot that I was chasing after. Some of that is interesting, but I do think that, like, there would probably was a more elegant way to kind of get some of that rug effect and have it be narratively useful, um, but without it being such a, like, hard shift that the movie takes. Yeah, it's, you know, end of the day, it's a good problem to have. Uh-huh. It's 
how do we shift from this good thing to this other good thing? Um, it's because the other thing is that the third act is substantially different. This is yeah. the problem the Dark Knight has. We talked about this where the Dark Knight climaxes its second act with, you know, Two-Face being born and, and Rachel being blown up and the Joker escaping. And it's a very effective sequence. But then the Joker just goes and does more Joker shit and the movie doesn't change. It just keeps doing what it was already doing. There is a significant change here that yeah. Riddler is behind bars and then this whole other thing happens. And I think the third act of this movie is fantastic. I yes. think the whole... Like, it's a big thing that happens in terms of him blowing the seawall. And if you want to be a fucking CinemaSins idiot, you can go, how did the Riddler get that much C4? And burp, burp, burp. and I don't care because it's a giant visual metaphor yeah. that works really well, right? Yeah, it's it's such a bold ending. I mean, because it's, it's insane. Like, it's so huge what happens to the movie on, like, in the city and all of that of... Yeah, it being of of it being washed out that Riddler wants to completely drown the city and the people in it and assassinate the mayor. Um, even though it's like it's this, everything we've seen from this lady seems like oh yeah, she seems like she'll be a pretty good mayor. Like she seems like she's like really invested. You know, the the one scene where she tries to get Bruce Wayne to do some good stuff. Nothing in that sequence reads like she's being like underhanded or duplicitous or trying to like get something to further her political goals. Um, it's just like anybody in that seat really just wants gone because he just wants all of it gone. Um, and yeah, like the visual metaphor um, and the the both the visual metaphor for the movie, but then also for Batman as a character, right? Like again, so much of it is about the psychological state of your protagonist and for him the city being flooded and it being this like is his failure that he couldn't have that he didn't prevent this earlier that he didn't make the character shift he needed he didn't become the person he needed to be to keep this from happening earlier has caused like everything to be destroyed and everything is is washed away and he has to like from that you know in an almost like baptismal sense he has to be like reborn as a better version of who he is because he himself needs to be washed away in the, this corruption like it's such a powerful big scale metaphor that like they fully commit to way more so than i thought like when the sequence was started i thought that maybe oh this is like not like they're going to find a way to stop the water from getting all the way in or something's going to happen it's like no batman doesn't prevent the flooding at all batman completely fails to stop riddler's plan like all he does is become a nicer person and he saves the mayor like he doesn't save every single person in gotham he doesn't stop the flood he doesn't do any of that shit like he resolutely fails as a batman he just tr changes successfully as a character and I think it's really key that the final tension of the movie is something Batman can't punch away. Yeah. He can't fight a flood, right? There is no way to fist fight the flood into submission. And even with all of the Riddler's goons that come out, which is this whole really interesting prescient thing they do with like the online extremism and stuff, mm -hmm. um, there's only so much he can do against that. Because this is a whole element that is bigger than what he had anticipated, right? He needs, he winds up needing Catwoman and Gordon's help to overcome those guys as well. Because he's dealing with so many things. And then, of course, I think, you know, the, the really, really smart key character turn the movie makes is when he... One, I do love the thing where he has fucking adrenaline on him and a hole in the uh -huh. suit ready to inject adrenaline. He does all of that. He beats the guy. Gordon stops him before he goes too far. And then the dude says, I'm vengeance. 
And I cannot tell you, Sean, how happy I am for a Batman movie to take a dumb Batman line like, I'm vengeance, and make clear that it was a dumb Batman line, right? Yes. Like, that is a line that in the Zack Snyder Batman would have been said completely seriously, and you were supposed to think Batman is cool for that, right? And in this movie, it's, you're a 30-year-old having a fucking temper tantrum with poor people, right? Yes. Like, and he, and he has to confront that. And he has to look down at the flood and go, I can't fist fight this thing. What can I actually do? And what he can do is go down into the waters with everyone and be a beacon of light and take them out of there. And it's an obvious metaphor. It's even a little heavy handed, but it's really good. And I think it's key for giving Batman an actual character arc where he's fundamentally different at the end of this movie. Yeah. And I think there's just something very powerful to me. Um, and this is where it becomes Batman and not like neo-noir, right? This is the thing that distinguishes Batman from like other neo-noir type stuff is that at the end of the day, he is a hero, right? And so it's like this, yes. this specific character arc of him learning, like, I need to use who I am not to hurt people, but to help people um, is like a very batman message right and it sees him taking that first step towards the aspirational version of batman um and it's a really compelling uh arc right it's it's a thing where uh one it's just nice to see it done in the batman movie batman's such a static character in every batman movie um like there that, I mean, that's just true that's true of all the live action batman movies Batman is just like a completely fucking static character. Even good ones, right? This the Batman in the 1966 Batman is still a static character. This is just not a problem with that movie, but he's always static. Um, whereas in other media, he's usually like very, you know, it, it's a story arc by story arc basis, but he changes over the course of the story because he's the protagonist. It's from his perspective. The stories are heavily involved and invested in him as a psychological character who needs to change and grow over the course of the adventure that he encounters. Um, and so actually having the movie be so invested in Batman's character to give him this full holistic arc that has this clear track from beginning to end. Um, and it, it is it is almost heavy handed, but in a way that is satisfying, like it should be because it is still a superhero movie. I want some yes. of the heavy handedness. I want some of the like big dramatic symbolism. And, you know, because that's the superhero quality. That's the heightened fantastic quality of it is it's big and i want him to do the like reverse version of the fucking you know dark narration he did at the beginning of the movie with the fucking nirvana song like i want all of that like i want it being like big and in your face because it still should have that superheroic quality to it um and, and that just, i just fit it into the plot in the setting of the style right. of this noir type story and what i was gonna say is and that iconic quality because there yes. is this really smart move where when he when he becomes the light when he becomes a hero he has this big red flare uh -huh. and i would bet money that the reason why this movie is colored red and black is because that was the first image matt reeves came up with mm -hmm. was like this movie will end with batman in a big dark puddle of water or more than a puddle and he's going to yeah. light a big red flare and pull people to him with that because that shot of like him guiding everyone out of the water with the big red torch that's the primal image of the entire movie and like one of the reasons you know this movie was very confidently made is like before they had shot a frame of it all the marketing was done with the red and black 
And it's just very clear that was the color scheme Matt Reeves had intended for this Mm -hmm. film. And I feel like it reads backwards out of that final image of why do these two images contrast in the movie so much it's because in the final image of the of the heroic arc they come together you know it's just good visual storytelling on that level you know this is not a movie you could turn black and white the red is really important to it yeah and it's it's the you know he starts the movie with his whole spiel right with his opening narration which one is really elegantly written to initially feel like it could either be the serial killer talking or it could be batman and you're not sure until he gets a bit into it because he's talking about blending in into the shadows like he's hiding amongst the people selecting his targets very carefully it's very serial killer type talk but it's all very dark anonymous he's he's you know submerged in like the general populace um like a predator um or like a wolf wearing sheep's clothing in the darkness trying to find people and at the end of the movie he is a beacon guiding people towards hope and towards like safety and using like that big dramatic red color contrasted with like the dark shadow of what he was at the beginning as you say like it is just you the whole movie is built with this sort of you know general color scheme in mind building towards this iconic image that creates this very dramatic powerful iconic um uh character arc and i just you know i always want really for my like big superhero characters like a batman or for the love of god superman you know, for the love of God, yes, for Superman day. in particular, I want them to be aspirational and hopeful characters and iconic and larger than life because it's like, it's, it, it is what they are. They're superheroes. Um, and even Batman, and I'm glad we have this big popular movie now that is evidence of this, even Batman can be, have all the cool, dark, violent, psychological stuff that you want from a like adult mature take on Batman and still have the fun aspirational part that gets at the like eight-year-old in your heart right like you can do both those things because that is literally what batman is he's been doing it for like you know 80 fuck 90 years uh at this point and sean uh, you saying all of that i think is a good segue into my my problem with how the movie chooses to end Mm -hmm. which is um and it's not a macro problem it's all the choices are it's more of a micro thing here where you have all of the themes that you were just laying out. You know, his final narration as he's on the roof of the the Madison Square Garden thing is him talking about how, you know, vengeance is wrong you, because you can't change the past. I think the writing here is actually really beautiful where he mm-hmm. talks about scars and that they hurt and they're painful, but that we can actually, we don't have to wallow in them. We can learn from them is the gist of it, basically. Yeah. And he says, you know, and I can I can be different. I He directly says the words, like, I didn't have the effect I hoped to have, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Batman very definitively says he was wrong at the end of this movie. And then, and so he finishes that speech, and he's looking up at the helicopter pulling off with the, um, the mayor's son, who's like a kind of key motif through the movie, is Batman's empathy for this kid who was also orphaned, right? Yeah. Um, which, again, Batman empathy very important Matt Reeves gets his shit and I think I wanted the movie to cut there I felt like it was supposed to cut there I thought Batman looking up finishing the narration literally looking up aspirational right I just expected the movie was going to cut to credits there directed by Matt Reeves instead we get two more scenes it's not like a ton more movie but it's a little more movie we get the scene at Arkham with the Riddler and the Joker that is just... An, it's an end credits scene that escaped from the end credits and yes. I don't know why it's there. We'll talk about that in a second. And then you get the last scene with Batman and Catwoman, which is a good scene. 
and I know why Matt Reeves shot it, and I understand its intention. And there is sort of a like classic movie noir feeling of it, of the femme fatale and the hero saying goodbye, going off in separate directions. I think it's beautifully shot. I think that last image they choose of you have Batman on the bike, then you cut to him looking in the rearview mirror. It's one final bit of voyeurism as he's looking back on her because voyeuristic looking is like a huge visual theme in the movie. Mm -hmm. It's the first shot of the movie. It's all through. And then he looks forward and he has this determined look on his face and the Giacchino score swells and it ends. It's not a bad ending that in any way ruins the movie for me at all. I want to be very clear on that. I just think the strongest possible version of this movie cuts on the roof of the Gotham Square Garden. It's not horrible, not saying any of that, but that is what I think. I, yeah, I'm 100% with you that it, like, the, it felt like they had such a powerful ending point there um, that to extend it. And, and I mean, I, there's stuff about the Riddler Joker scene that I like, even as not like a post credit scene. Like, I like, you know, I do think it is important to have at least the sensation of that, like, the Riddler's not gone for good, right? It's a very important Batman-y kind of thing and noir kind of thing of that, you know, even if, you know, you're helping these people and you found your way towards goodness that, like, the corruption and the darkness and all that is not totally gone. I think there is some utility to that. I don't think it's, like, a necessary scene and I would have cut it. But I do see some of the argument of, like, leaving it even not as a post credit scene. Um, but it should, it, they should have cut it. And then the Catwoman one is, I'm with you that, like, I think it's a very nice scene I like that little last bit. I like them, like, you know, both coming to the end of that, like, tunnel and her turning one way, Batman waiting, him going the other way. Like, it's such a nicely constructed sequence. But I just think it kind of feels misaligned of... I think that feels like an ending to a movie where Batman and Catwoman's relationship is more primary to the movie than it was in the Batman. Like, not to say that it was an afterthought or something. It's a very important part of the movie. But it's not the main thing the movie's about, Right. Um, the main thing that it is about is Batman confronting his past and it's less about him confronting his relationship with Catwoman or something like that. Um, and so it just feels like putting the ending of the movie on his relationship with Catwoman, it just feels like a slight misreading of what the movie ultimately was specifically about. And there was no place before the very more natural ending point to put a little like resolutory moment for Catwoman and Batman, which I like having. Like, it is nice to have a little moment with those characters, like, after, you know, the action is done. It's just, like, the way that the rest of the ending sequences were constructed doesn't give a natural place for that to happen. And instead, the natural place for the ending would have been right at the end of that helicopter sequence um, of him looking up and it going away and, and his narration ending. Um, it just feels so clearly like the best ending spot for the movie. Yeah. And again... I don't think it's that big a problem. No. Steven Spielberg is one of the best directors who's ever lived, and he is terrible at ending movies after basically Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, you know, we both mm -hmm. love his movie Lincoln. Lincoln goes a good 10 minutes too long oh, with random yeah. bullshit. Lincoln is a right? like, much more dramatic example of this problem of having like such a perfect ending shot, and then you've yes. just got like two or three scenes and it just goes on. Yeah, it's it is a pretty yeah. common thing for lots of movies that like you get the one or two extra scenes and you're left a little bit. It always feels like, you know, I don't make movies, but as like a, someone who writes, right? Like I see this, that problem of like, there's, there was a version of something that was very precious to you as a creator and you've like left it there because it's like this version of this thing was so important, but the rest of what the essay or the piece or the poem, or whatever it is, has changed enough 
that it no longer really belongs there. And it's one of those of like, sometimes you just got to cut the darlings out, right? You just got to cut, right. even if it's like you loved this scene to death. And that motorcycle scene with Batman and Catwoman in particular, is such a lovingly constructed scene. It feels like a scene that I'm guessing Matt Reeves like came up with. And he's like, God, this is such a great idea for the sequence. I really want to do it. And it is a really great scene. It just doesn't belong in the movie and should have been cut. But it, it's, yeah. it's not like a critical flaw or anything. It's just in an otherwise like pretty fucking perfect solid movie. It's a rare misstep the movie makes. Yeah, which again, I've I've seen movies have much worse problems than this, including other Batman movies. So you know, it's whatever. Um, let's talk about the scene with Riddler and and the Joker there though. I I think it's doing some interesting stuff. I do have to admit, Sean, in in my heart of hearts. I would love for Robert Pattinson's Batman to never meet yeah. the Joker. Mm -hmm. I would like to ignore the Joker. I would like Congress to pass an act saying we cannot use the Joker in movies for 50 years. Just until my natural death, please never do the Joker again. I'm done with it. In my lifetime, two actors have won Oscars for playing the Joker. That's too many Jokers. We can stop now. But it was still a pretty decent scene. And the guy they cast there is Barry Keegan who's one of the only actors you could do as Joker and not have me immediately roll my eyes and go, please, God, kill me. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you that I don't need Joker. I mean, I think it specifically it works with this scene because it's like, it, like it, it is obviously you're a Batman fan. You know it's obviously the Joker, the laugh, like all that shit happens and the way he's obscured. It makes it clear that it's supposed to be the Joker. But for like the actual scene as it exists, the point is more just that like, there are other damaged people, other people on the margins out there that are looking to like, you know, lash out at society um, and that the yes. Riddler is not alone and that like evil is not defeated or whatever. And it's like, you know, cruelty and all the, like those things in the world are not stamped out because Batman had a change of heart, you know, like that is like a, a effective thing and, and it being like a Joker cameo is kind of whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't need the Joker. I haven't seen anything. I think that that actor has been in, um, but I'll, I'll take it on good faith that like, I mean, the rest of the movie is so immaculately cast. Obviously, whoever the cast of the Joker would be a very good casting. It's just that like Batman is one of those superheroes that like very rarely, there's only a couple like Spider-Man that has such a rich cast of villains. There are so many good villains um, that I, you know, there are a bunch of villains that have never been in movies that you could use in a sequel to this that would be awesome that are not the Joker. Or there are villains like Mr. Freeze or Poison Ivy that you could pull for like a more fantastical um, villain for a second movie that have been in movies before, uh, but are not great takes on those characters. It would be cool to do <laughs> like a good take on a character that's been done poorly rather than doing another take on a character that has at least you know Heath Ledger's version is like iconic and amazing people seem to like like the Joker new Joker movie um you know I have a lot of fondness for the Jack Nicholson one even if there are issues with it in 89 Batman um and then of course like classic 66 Batman is fucking amazing um we don't need another well, you're forgetting Joker. Jared Leto the best Joker. oh yeah I'm kidding. I, I can't don't even you mean say that Morbius the living vampire yeah yeah oh, oh god. god um yeah, it, it's yeah, it's you know. And here's the thing: the explanation you gave is almost word for word eerily an interview Matt Reeves gave the other day, where they asked him, "Is this the Joker?" And he said, "Yes." And they said, "Does that mean Batman Two is the Joker?" And he said, "No, it doesn't. Maybe, but the point of this scene was exactly what you described, Sean, which is that this this 
the world is not settled. It's very unsettled at the end of this movie, and I wanted to drive that home, and this seemed like a fun way to do it. So, And I would take him at his word. I They have not written Batman yeah. 2 yet. They are not committed to using Joker. I would love... Honestly, I thought this several times through this movie. They could do a really good Poison Ivy in this world. Mm-hmm. I would love a movie where Poison Ivy is out there blowing up factories or something to get rid of coal production, and at first Batman thinks she's a villain... But the twist in the movie is she finally brings Batman around to her way of thinking because climate change is bad and he helps her blow up a plant or something. That'd be great. Yeah, Poison Ivy would be good. Like, uh, this is finally, if, you know, it it seems like they'll probably make a sequel to this because happily it's making a lot of money. Um, It's time for Robin. You know, they finally have it, right? They finally have a Batman that's good enough and a filmmaker that's good enough that you can do Robin and do it well in live action. And it's like, as a Batman fan, that is like the thing I so fucking desperately need from a live action Batman movie. Yes. Both because I just want to see it and because I want the rest of the world to know that Robin is cool and Robin is good and Robin is like a vital, necessary part of the larger Batman mythos. Um, and we finally have a scenario where that can happen. I 100% think if I were Matt Reeves, my North Star for Batman 2 would be Robin is going to be the heart of this thing. And what do I build around it to have a plot where Batman's character growth that we did in movie one is actualized in movie two through him taking in this kid? Yeah, it's it's such a like, yeah, because that was like the media thought I had coming out of the movie theater. I was like, God, I hope they make a sequel to this movie. And then as soon as I thought about the sequel to this movie, I'm like, Robin, Like, like, like the idea of like, you know, the whole like general scope of a movie, I feel like slots so clearly into place. For exactly that reason of like it's the best way that you can take Batman's character growth and not have to reset it to a certain extent, which I think is what a lot of creators would struggle with, is if you just all you want to do is gritty, dark Batman and that's the only thing you're interested in, well then you can't have Batman have the character arc. And that's part of the problem of a lot of lesser Batman stories, is that he's just stuck in that mode infinitely, because anytime he takes a step out of it, he has to be reset back into it. Robin is like one of those things that if we're taking this young version of Batman and having him move towards the older, more aspirational version we see in most of the comic books and the cartoons and stuff, Robin is like the key element that is has always been the connective tissue that does that for him as a character. And it would be the perfect thing to give you a spine of a second movie. Yeah. And there's so many exciting ways you could do it. It could be one of the existing Robins. You could create a whole new character. There's lots of things you could do that I think Batman fans and the general public would accept. You know, they do it. You could do Carrie Kelly Robin, and I think that would be cool. Like, there's, and there's lots of young actors who would be exciting for any incarnation of this. So I really hope we get that. Yeah. Um, Catwoman at the end of this movie name drops uh, uh, Bloodhaven, which is the sister city that Nightwing is in in the comic books. Which immediately, like, was one of the things that jumped out at me is like, oh, he's setting, he's laying the fucking groundwork. You can do a Robin, <laughs> and then in the third movie, you can have Night him become Nightwing and go to Bloodhaven and do a Nightwing movie. And holy shit, that'd be fucking awesome. Nightwing's very good. Be great. You know, HBO Max needs fucking content. They've already greenlit a Penguin miniseries. Um, just you know, put all the pieces on the board. Get our Robin, our yes. Nightwing miniseries. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, doubling back. Two key things to talk about here. The cinematography by Greg Frazier and the music no. by Michael Giacchino. Mm-hmm. I want to start with the music. I Low-key, Michael Giacchino is the MVP of this movie. Like, yeah. this is 
a stupendous movie score. It's the first superhero movie score in God knows how long that attempts to do actual melodies that you will hum coming out of the theater and motifs and stuff. But it is also, and this really was hammered home for me on a second viewing, moment to moment, this is like John Williams caliber, really, really good film scoring of like attuned to the needs of the scene, in addition to having these big motifs that you're just never going to forget after seeing the movie. Yeah, the core Batman theme in particular is so striking and so effective that like it you know it evokes a lot of like the classic batman themes um but is not those like it's very much its own thing um it's very impressive for a character that has had a number of different like really great musical themes over the years um to have something that like fits in that wheelhouse perfectly but still is very distinctive um is very impressive but yes it's the whole score has that quality to it and one thing i loved about the score was the nirvana song which really fucked with my head because they put elements of the batman theme in it so it like i had the hardest time figuring out what the is that a new song that sounds like a nirvana song is it a nirvana song what the fuck is even happening Uh, because i remember talking with my dad because i went to see it with my dad afterwards and like trying to figure out if that was a song i was like I don't I don't think it's an existing song because they're a, they had a whole acoustic guitar part that was just the Batman theme in that song. What the fuck's happening? I and mean, I thought that was like it really it really went mess with my head, but I thought that, was that like I don't know if I've ever seen a movie do that, take an existing song and remix it to incorporate spe- spe- like specific new melodies and elements from the original film score injecting it into a pre-existing pop song is pretty cool. It is cool. I mean, and that music, that must have been there from like the scripting level because that's in the trailer uh-huh. for the the first trailer they ever did back when they had shot like one month of the movie and then COVID shut them down, remember? They did a little right. teaser, which is very fun to go back and watch because you can tell what parts of the movie they had shot first uh-huh. um, because what did they have to like, Alfred had not shot anything yet because you got a little bit of Andy Circus did some VO for it, but it's not any of his stuff from the movie. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that that I think is very funny. Um but yeah, it's uh, it's the use of the Nirvana song, uh, which is something in the way. This great song, great use of that song, uh, both times they do it. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a really tremendous score. And Michael Giacchino is someone who is has always been eminently very talented, but I have not loved a lot of his work lately. I think his music in the Spider-Man movies is boring mm-hmm. and bad. Like the Spider-Man theme in those movies is just dull as shit. Um, like his best stuff he's done in the last 10 years has been with Matt Reeves on let me in. And then the two apes movies they did are phenomenal scores. Um, but you know, my favorite Michael Giacchino thing has always been lost, which he did six seasons of, and it's this incredible, like intricate score over six seasons of TV. It's kind of unprecedented on American TV. The only other thing since would be kind of game of Thrones, but I think lost was even better at that. Yeah. Or Um, Dr. Who obviously, did, yeah, yeah, Doctor Who Murray Gold got yeah. to do that over a number of years. Yeah, um, but anyway, it's it's he's a great composer, and I this is just such a such a good score. Um, and then the cinematography by Greg Fraser, holy shit! Mm-hmm. Like this is a complex, cool image using so much like dark negative space, like genuinely using like negative space within the the image to like draw your eye in, and all the stuff it does with colors and blurring, like I said. Um, a lot of cool effects, like just the nerd in me, I, I've learned about were used like 
Frazier um, also shot The Mandalorian, and it was on The Mandalorian that he came up with this new effects thing they, they've started doing called a, basically like a, I forget what they call it, but it's basically a big video wall. Yeah. Where it's basically like a modern version of rear projection, where they have super, super high quality, bright LED screens around like where the green screen would be. And they're, they can put whatever they want on there and adjust depth of field and all sorts of effects, which means instead of having to composite an image in later on a green screen, which can look really bad as every Marvel movie lately has taught us, you can do it all in camera and it can look really good. And The Mandalorian did that. Uh, Greg Frazier also shot Dune, so which he has an Oscar nomination for and deservedly, obviously yeah. great looking movie. And then... Uh, they used it on the Batman and I, I can even probably tell you which scenes like I, I would imagine all the scenes where they're on the like building where the the bat signal are mm -hmm. probably benefit from that because that normally would be a sound stage with either a matte painting or a green screen but it looks really really good and then also this movie was shot digitally it was shot on an Ari Alexa but Greg Fraser also did this on Dune and I think this is fucking ingenious they shot the whole movie digitally and then they printed out what they needed onto, they printed out all the footage onto a film negative, onto physical film, scanned the film back in at like super high, you know, 8K resolution or whatever, and that became the digital intermediate. So they got all the benefits of shooting digitally and didn't have to pay for film and all of that. But then there's actual real film grain and halation and all the things that physical film gets you on the final image. Dune, like I said, did the same thing. And both of these movies, I had trouble in the theater figuring out how they shot the movie mm -hmm. because the answer is it's kind of a weird hybrid. That's an ingenious move to me that I think more movies should do because it's a really creative way of getting around the film versus digital thing. Um, and it's such a good-looking movie. Yeah, it makes the movie look fantastic. And it is a thing where I think, like, it feels like we're right on the edge of there being, like, a big, like paradigm shift in a lot of like effects in movies specifically with the like the the sort of the sphere you're talking about or like this the the like real virtual set um because like one yes. of the things that's interesting about that i know this for sure on mandalorian i assume it's probably true in the batman as well is that the imagery that is on that set is built using unreal engine 4 um because video wow. game engines are like the thing because video game engines have to render things in real time which traditional movie special effects aren't they're all pre-rendered so you just have you make your immaculate image and then you just have computers spend fucking forever actually like generating it and uh like creating the image for a video sequence if with a video game engine you can change things dynamically um and move the camera and so you have a physical camera that then is attached to a sort of virtual camera in the software so with a physical actual camera moves the perspective shifts on the the sort of generated virtual background that's being on projected onto the or being displayed through the super bright led screens so that the camera can move perfectly and actors are actually standing on a set being able to look out into the distance of what like cared like audiences will be able to see um and all the lighting is perfect because the leds are bright enough that the lighting that is being created through the virtual environment um, with super high res photo scans in UE4 actually projects lighting onto the actors physically standing there. Um, and as you say, like only a few uh, pro productions have actually used that. I think one of the first ones that did an early version of it was that sci-fi movie Oblivion with uh, Tom Cruise. Uh, but it feels like it's becoming common enough that I'm very excited um, that hopefully more productions are going to start taking making use of that especially as ue5 gets better it'll probably be more distributed because i know epic wants to get deeper into that 
Because, yes, I didn't know it was used for this movie, but it makes perfect sense. Because it has that same quality that The Mandalorian has, where you, there are some scenes where you're like, how did they shoot this? Because it like because it doesn't seem like they went to like an actual building because this skyline is fake. Um, but it's, it's obviously not a matte painting, and it looks way too good to be green screen. Um, because even great green screen, oftentimes you can kind of feel some of the fakeness of the lighting might be slightly off and stuff like that. It has a really immaculate production design to it um, that I really hope that that stuff becomes more common. Because I would love for yeah. more movies, you know, most movies are not going to be able to look as good as the Batman because they're not going to be as well shot and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they could at least get some of like that, like the immaculate quality of some of the effects if this becomes a more widespread technique. Yeah, I'm reading the the Wikipedia page for The Mandalorian actually has a really good description of all of this. Um, the technology is called Stagecraft, and it yeah. was made by ILM uh, and Epic Games together to, to invent this. But what it came from, obviously Greg Frazier worked on it, but also John Favreau, who directed or created The Mandalorian, he had this idea from doing The Jungle Book, the movie he did, where there is the physical kid, Mowgli, but everything else is CGI. And one of the things he did to make it look good is that they did have big screens with images on them while shooting. None of that's in the movie because it's all filled in with CGI, but he wanted actual lighting on the kid uh -huh. that reflected what they were doing. Um, and he really liked that, but it was a little time-consuming because they hadn't created a full process for it. And so then with um the lion king he did and then the mandalorian they really hammered this out and now there's a lot of movies lining up to use this and and clearly greg frazier is being like hired by all these people because he's the dp who's done this and figured it like out how to do it so this has become kind of his calling card but like the biggest thing it solves for me sean is the lighting issue yeah. because the you can you can do good green screening it is possible it's been done for decades but you need to be good at it. And part of being good at it means lining up the lighting in such a way that everything will look right in the final image. The Marvel movies are really bad at this. And it's become worse and worse where just the, you they light the movies very flatly. And the lighting on the characters when you do the green screen stuff just never reflects their surroundings. Mm -hmm. Spider-Man No Way Home was really bad about this. Where like the characters never looked like they were actually situated in the environments because the lighting was just, there was no care taken for it. Um, and Marvel is kind of a factory that moves really fast. So I don't know how you can fix that with the existing technology. But I think it's, you know, John Favreau put it as like, it's like the, instead of taking actors to location, you take the location to the actors. And, you know, sometimes you want actual location work, obviously. But in a big effects movie, you know, or a, or a very, like, backlot movie like The Batman, this is really ideal. It also keeps costs down yeah. in some ways. Particularly um, for a TV production like The Mandalorian, like, you can't, yes. you know, you can't do that. You can't you can't make a brand new alien world for every single episode of your TV show. Like, Doctor Who knows very well how, like, thin your budget <laughs> is stretched in trying to do production like that. Um, so, right. Yeah. Like, it definitely, yeah. you know, if, if, you know, any, like, you know, prospective film students listen to the podcast. Like this is like, this is stuff that'll be in like the film textbook of tomorrow. Right. Like this, it really yes. is feels to me like it's part of like the big shift in like what visual effects are going to be like in the years to come. And probably Greg Frazier will be, his name will be, will be in there. as like one of like the great, you know, DPs in the history of, of film and like pushing that like well, style forward. It's kind of like how, you know, the guy who shot Citizen Kane was yeah, Greg Toland. Yeah, Toland. And, and he became a famous movie Greg because uh -huh. he was so good at 
figuring out like the thing that Citizen Kane innovated, which was shooting on higher speed film stocks that could catch more light, which meant that you could do the really deep charoscuro lighting that is necessary for that kind of film. And he shot a lot of movies like that in the years to come because he was a fucking expert on it, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's cool stuff. The Batman is just an impressive production all over and makes you excited for the future of Hollywood in some ways, in part because we finally got a real Batman movie. <laughs> yes, it's like, it, it is such a rewarding conclusion to the very long thing we've done of re-watching all those old Batman movies, some of which was very fun to revisit. We also watched Batman and Robin and Batman Forever, which uh, <laughs> were particularly yes. brutal to revisit. Um, but it, it, but all of it was building up to this moment of where we were both so excited by everything we were seeing and hearing about this movie. It is extremely gratifying to get to the end of that and be like, and after this long journey, they finally made a live-action Batman movie. We've done... How many podcasts have we done? Like 10? 11? We did 10 parts yeah. of Batman on film, yeah. Yeah, so it's like finally after after 10 separate parts on part 11, we finally actually talked about a live-action Batman movie. It's amazing. It is amazing. Will you do one last thing with me, Sean, before we wrap for today? Okay. Will you rank all of the live-action Batman movies with me? Okay. Sure. I was always planning on doing this when we got to the end of the Batman on film series, but I don't know when we're going to get to the end of it. So for now, let's just do it with the movies we have, all of the live action ones so far. Um, I do we count? Do we count Batman v Superman in this? Let's let's leave that out of it because I have I, w okay. I would want to rewatch whatever like the director's cut okay. or ultimate edition or whatever. So if we continue yeah. the seeing some of the other stuff in like Red Hood, we could do yeah. a more comprehensive okay. one eventually, incorporating the animated stuff also. So the solo Batman movies we have sixty six, eighty nine, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, the three Nolan movies, and the Batman. That's all of them, right? Yes. Okay. Number one is the Batman. Yes. Yeah, There's just easy. not even a contest. It's pretty easy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If if you are someone trying to tell me that this is not the best Batman movie, I do kind of question your critical judgment. Yeah. What's number two and three are sixty six in Batman Returns. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Are you saying in that order number two is sixty six? No, but okay. it, it could be that order. I because I, I would say Batman Returns and then sixty six. So two for Batman okay. Returns, three for sixty six. That's basically, how, that's how I did it on Twitter the other day when I made this joke. Because yeah. those are the three good ones and everything else I don't really care yes. about. But those are the top three. Okay. Big jump. What's number four? I mean, it would either have to be 89 Batman or Batman Begins for me. I think that's correct. Yeah. Oh. And that is a really tough one. Yeah. Like. Batman Begins, more coherent story. Batman 89, it looks so fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'll go... I think I'll give it to Burton and have him be 89, 89 Batman above Batman Begins feels right to me. There's something about like the production yeah. of that movie is so luscious. Um, mm -hmm. I would definitely say that like watching that on like 4K Blu-ray, that was a like incredible movie to watch on 4K Blu-ray. Whereas like Batman yes. Begins is like, eh, it looks fine. You know, it's got some good stuff in it, but. And, you know, Michael Keaton never got to do as much as Batman as we wanted. He is really fucking good in that yeah. movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so five is Batman Begins. Six, what's next? Is it is it the Dark Knight? Yeah, I mean, because it's what because we, we have left is Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. The Dark Knight is the yes. best of those ones. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. Okay. Uh, so yeah, the ones we have left are 
you're going to laugh at me. I typed that as The Dark Knight Returns. We it's just keep making that until the end of time. joke in the history of this podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, Dark Knight Rises, Batman and Robin, Batman Forever. There's a spiteful part of me that wants to put Dark Knight Rises at the very bottom, even though I know it's technically a better movie than those other two, but I fucking hate it. Yeah, it's like, this is really the, like, who gives a shit section. It's like yes. it's like when we do our Weekly Suit Gundam, there's, like, at the very bottom, we've got, like, you know, G-Savior and shit like that. It's like, do I even really want yeah. to bother breaking this? Because, <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, dude, I, I would... I wouldn't fight you on putting Dark Knight Rises at the very bottom. I th- I think there's at least there's like an amusing there's a so bad it's good quality to sections of Batman Forever and Batman Robin. I had a good time tweeting out ridiculous shit like of them like reversing the footage um on Batman when he was drowning in <laughs> Batman Robin and shit like that. There's like the I would... incessantly horny nature of fucking Batman Forever um and like the love interest in that movie is fucking utterly ridiculous. You know, I, I think what's funny here, like, I would probably put Batman and Robin at the top of these three because it is the most so bad it's good. Like, it yeah. has stuff I think is fucking it's funny in it. has got the ice puns with Arnold Schwarzenegger, yes. you know? Yeah. So, okay, I'm putting Batman and Robin beneath the Dark Knight. Then for eight and nine, do we do it in Be Legends and put Dark Knight Rises at the very bottom and just say fuck it? Or do we put Forever at the bottom? Because Forever is a really bad movie. Yeah, I mean, you've got all the Robin shit. In both those movies is bad. Uh, it's yeah. like bad, but those are still two really fucking bad movies. Remember Tommy Lee Jones in Batman Forever? Remember yeah. when they put Two Face in it and he was just like Joker and they just gave Tommy Lee Jones a bunch of fucking cocaine? Um remember his like he's got his layer that's like cut in half and like it's got like the like devil lady and the angel lady. Um, yep, <laughs> and everything that movie just looks like it was shot for like five bucks. Um, you know, I but just the Dark Knight Rises, yeah, is fucking Fox News porn. Yeah, like I think the thing is, I th- this is why I'm kind of compelled to put Dark Knight Rises at the bottom. It's I just find it like a kind of reprehensible movie. Whereas like Batman Forever is like a what the fuck? <laughs> what are you even like really yeah. going for? You know, it's like at, like Batman Forever <laughs> has like the most gaudy lighting in a movie I've ever seen, but at least like the lighting is gaudy. It's not just like, it's not just like boring and stale, which is kind of what I feel like a lot of like the Christopher Nolan aesthetic feels like to me. Um, And it doesn't have like totally fucking awful, just like shoving it in your face, like Bush era, uh, early to mid two thousands, American right wing conservative politics in it. So that's a plus. I mean, it's worse than Bush era. I mean, we were 2012 at that point. That one yeah. is like presaging Trump shit. I mean, it it's is. True. It's true. It is right wing bullshit. Okay, so worst to best, we have it as nine Dark Knight Rises, eight Batman Forever, seven Batman and Robin, six The Dark Knight, five Batman Begins, four Batman eighty nine, three Batman sixty six, two Batman Returns, one The Batman. Yeah, that's... most of that list is bad, but the top is the, those top three are very good. Yeah, there there's definitely like I feel like there are three very distinct tiers. It's <laughs> like here's the good <laughs> Batman movies, here's the middling Batman movies that aren't awful, but they all have like pretty distinct issues, and then here's the like don't bother watching the Batman movies at the very bottom. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we've got our list. Final question for today. Yeah. There's one theatrical Batman movie we left off of there. Uh huh. 
what is the best theatrical Batman movie? Is it The Batman or is it Mask of the Phantasm? I mean, I would still say Mask of the Phantasm is better than The Batman. The Batman is very good. Um, I think I lean towards where you're going there. Yeah, like, the, I think that's probably right. It's not putting down The Batman at all. No. Mask of the Phantasm is a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mask of the Phantasm is so... And they're so good, but like, there are two movies that just go very well together. Like, They both have their head yeah. on totally straight. Like, Mask of the Phantasm... like. I mean, it's technically neo-noir in that it wasn't literally made in, like, the 40s. Um, but it is, but it is like, stylistically classic noir. And this is, like, neo-noir Batman in the sense that it's yes. got, like, the 70s grounded realism side to it. And so they feel we like two sides of the same coin on, like, a good cinematic approach to Batman. One is more classic art deco, like, you know, big flashbacks, all that shit, uh, like classic noir. And one of them is the more gritty 70s style. Yeah. Um, so they go hand in hand. They're two movies that go great together. But I would still put Master Phantasm on top. I think you're right, and I and I think you're right about all of that because we even talked about that on our Mask of the Phantasm episode. Yeah. How striking it is that it is, it's not a neo noir at all. It really is just a classical like '40s film noir mm -hmm. down to the flashback structure and everything. It's yeah. like out of the past or something. Um, very good stuff. All right. Well, Sean, we finally got to talk about a good Batman movie. <laughs> After all the Nolan shit. Yep. Um, and we got good stuff in the weeks to come. But I am, I'm just glad that the Batman was so good. Everybody likes a happy ending. And that's what we finally got with our Batman movies.